Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. <laughs> You're now tuned into the Awful Channel. Support for the Projection Booth podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. that wounded her hurt me more than had he killed me dead. <laughs> the fall of an empire <laughs> is nothing compared to the descent of a man. I am revenge sent from the infernal kingdom. A sweet revenge! <laughs> now do I come to thee! Go to the Goths and raise an army there. And in the Empress court there is a queen. Would murder. Stop her! For those who think revenge is sweet, I shall grind your bones to dust. Taste this. Ah! 
taste of power, lust, madness, and the ultimate sacrifice of love. Academy Award winner Anthony Hopkins, Academy Award winner Jessica Lange, Tony Award winner Alan Cumming, Laura Frazier, Harry Lennox, Jonathan Reese Myers. Titus. Welcome, my gracious lord. And welcome all. <laughs> welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary, and joining me, of course, my co-host, Mr. Mike White. You know, they say I have a Roman nose. It's Roman all over my face. Yeah, you might want to get a tissue or something for that. Anyway, and joining us this week, our friend and Shakespeare fiend, Mr. Edward Pettit. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. I didn't know when you sent me the notes if that was Shakespeare fiend or Shakespeare friend, and it was just a typo. So I'm glad to be a fiend. Well, we'll go both ways. This <laughs> week, we're looking at the 1999 film Titus, directed and designed by Julie Taymor, and based on the bloody tragedy by William Shakespeare, Titus Andronicus. It tells the story of a Roman general, played by Anthony Hopkins, who returns home following a battle to find Rome in transition. It's all about traditions, vengeance, and much, much more. So, Ed, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Titus, and what did you think? I saw Titus when it uh, was first released in the theaters in uh, 99. Um, I'll, see, I'll see pretty much every Shakespeare film that comes out. And um, I was very excited to see it because it, you know, it looked unusual and, you know, and, 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 and highly stylized. And, I thought, and it's a play I love which you never get to see. I mean, it's not performed very often, and and this is the only feature film ever made of it. So um, I thought, wow, great. But, you know, I'm like a Branagh Shakespeare guy. I love those kinds of Shakespeare movies the, the most. And so... I, I, I was when I saw Titus, I, I kind of w- really wanted to like this kind of bizarro approach to the whole thing. You know, it was unique, it was visually arresting. Um, it doesn't uh, Joy Taylor. It, it's like it's like it doesn't give a shit about Shakespeare or his plays. It's like it's not about the Bard, that kind of thing, and it exists purely. It exists purely for its own purpose. You know, I mean, she she wanted to make a film about this story, and no matter what the text was, she was going to do what she wanted to do with it. And I love that about it. But at the time, I think I wasn't quite ready for it. I, I still wanted to see too much traditional Shakespeare, and I didn't quite love it so much then. I admired it, but I didn't love it. But over the years, I've seen it again and again, and just rewatching it again for this time, I got to say, it's easily in my top 10 favorite Shakespeare films. It is so beautifully shot and acted, and I loved everything about it watching it this time. I don't think I was ready for it the first time because it was so unusual. But now I just I can't get enough of this watching it now. As for you, Mr. Mike? Well, I used to watch Titus every Sunday night on the, I believe it was on the WB network, and I really liked Stacey Keach. I wasn't that big of a fan of Christopher Titus, though, but, uh, you know, I, I had some laughs. When you're born, you're pure. Unspoiled and trusting, I believed everything and everyone. Then I met my parents. <laughs> if a girl named Linda calls, I'm not home. And don't tell your mother. Yes, Daddy. (laughs) 
guy named Patrick calls, I'm not home. And don't tell your father. Yes, Mommy. At five years old, I was a double agent. I had to be. Dad's been married five times, and I swore I would never be like my dad. Or my mom. 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 mom. Instead, I've chosen to always give the benefit of the doubt and live in total trust. Uh, wrong Titus, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Shit. Wrong film again. Um, yeah, this was my first time seeing Titus just the other day. I had seen it in the video store, uh, for a long time, dating myself by saying video store. Uh, the blue face of Anthony Hopkins kind of looking out at me, and I was like, I don't know what this is. Sure has a lot of really famous people in it. Never really sat down to watch it, and I finally, just the other day, watched it for the first time, and really enjoyed it. Uh, Long as heck, and really reminded me of what we're going to talk about in a few weeks when we talk about Richard III, Richard Loncrane's Richard III. But uh, yeah, I I thought that it was absolutely gorgeous. I was really kind of taken aback by the story. I thought for sure I was going to get lost with all of the plans within plans within plans but um no i managed to stick with it and um even managed to follow the shakespeare language which sometimes kind of throws me off as for me i saw it in the theater in 1999 when it came out i may have actually been working at the main art when it played and i think i was one of four people that saw it because this movie had a pretty big budget and it didn't really make a lot of money and it is just a gorgeous film to look at in terms of design. I find it to be a fascinating story about revenge and race and all kinds of things that are very contemporary considering that Shakespeare wrote this thing 400-odd years ago. And I think some of that also has to do with the direction and the staging that Julie Taymor gives to it. In a lot of ways, Mike, you're talking about um, uh, foreshadowing Richard III, which we're talking about in a few weeks. But let's just start off with, you know, because we all talked about uh, the design on this thing. Um, the fact is, to me, it reminds me a little bit like The Devils in that, once again, it's one of these films that is everywhere and nowhere because there's so many hints back to ancient Rome and there's so many hints to our current time and times in between. Yeah, the it is in this very timeless space. I think we talked about that as well when we talked about Satyricon just last week. It is gorgeous to look at. The set design is amazing. And actually, there's a connection between Satyricon and uh, this film. One of the same designers worked on Satyricon and worked on uh, Titus, so that was kind of cool. Um and yeah, it kind of uses a lot of things from uh, the 1930s and 1950s, and I think there's a lot of setup between 30s and 50s uh, with some of the characters. Some of them fall into this kind of 30s, more fascistic camp, and some of them fall into this 50s, kind of more idealized camp, um, be they goths or be they 
um, Romans. And I really like, of course, you know me, I'm a huge fan of duality. So I love this whole setup between the Goths and the Romans, the 30s and the 50s, the good and the bad, and all this kind of dichotomy that's going throughout the play. We even have, you know, a lot of characters that you could say, okay, well, we've got the bad female on one side of it with Tamora, who we'll talk about more in a bit, and we've got the good female on the other side uh, with Lavina. so it's just like this whole setup between how they are, and then the same thing with, like, the two sons and the two sons, and just the way that we play back and forth between these, and um, the way that the language, of course, kind of brings back in a lot of the same themes over and over again, even to the point where, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, tigers throughout the whole thing. So it was, it was a really well done as far as the look and feel, and then also playing up those different aspects of, of uh, the dichotomy. One of the things I love so much about the design is, is it's, it's, it's this kind of consistency, in, in, which it seems odd because it's, it's this big mix of time periods all through it, from ancient you know to very modern. And usually, when a Shakespeare film, or really kind of any film, but but especially when Shakespeare does this on stage or in film, it usually screams so loud that we're making an art, a statement here about the continuity of art and how it exists, you know. And it's usually a little bit pompous. But this was so complete, and the mixture of it, and everything works so well together that I I get the feeling that I'm watching a fantasy world, you know, that like this world exists, this is just the way this world is, it just happens to have a mixture of all, you know, uh, of different things from what we would consider a chronological, you know, timeline are all mixed together. And it feels like, it feels like world building in when they were making it. And, and, and I love that so much about it. Now, of course, Tamor had a lot of experience. She didn't just, you know, set up this film and do it. This was a, a stage production that they did for a very, you know, small theater, I think 135 seat theater, but she had worked on this whole design for this show. And then, you know, in translating it on film, it just got bigger and they did location shooting, but um, it really paid off all that work. And I think the stage, you know, time doing this play, you know, helped invest that and enabled her to make this, this, this world that doesn't seem, that seems like it exists. You know what I mean? Exactly. You know, to move Shakespeare beyond what we're used to in terms of uh, sometimes some of the films can be a little stage bound. And what she did was her way of making the film cinematic, as she said in uh, interviews and also in the commentary, is that there are silent sections within the film where there is no dialogue. And those things were created in order to stitch together the various scenes or to add things such as the beginning of the film. So let's kind of talk about the plot with that. It opens up with this kid. He's at a kitchen table. Looks kind of like the 1950s or something. I really get this sort of, you know, um, mid-century. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. 
No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. American uh, kitchen. And he's playing with his food and these uh, little toy soldiers and, and various things. And there's soundtrack of like cartoons and various things going on uh, from the TV that's on, although we don't see the TV. And all of a sudden, this wall explodes in the kitchen, and this guy comes in and grabs the kid and takes this like paper helmet that he has on his head, made out of a, I guess, like a brown paper bag or something. And this is sort of where this character takes him to the Colosseum, and that's what starts the film um, in terms of the the play with the dialogue, because the first lines, of course, come from the character of Titus, played by Anthony Hopkins. Was I the only one that thought Time Bandits doing that? Sequence? I totally thought Time Bandits. I was right there with you. I thought for too. sure. Yeah, I, I thought for sure that like God was going to come and you know give back the book. <laughs> and that helped secure it for me too, in in a kind of fantasy world setting. In that you know, I, I, there was a, a, a I guess a visual or a plot reference there to another film that's set in a fantasy world, and that kind of made it work for me. Sort of Terry Gilliam does uh, Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which we need to see. <laughs> and this may be as close as you get to it, because as I think about it, I would see Terry Gilliam, obviously, as another influence on design. I mean, something like Brazil, and then you look at this film. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and at first, boy, it's hard to remember way back when, but I think my initial thought to that opening may have been, well, you know, with a little heavy-handed, this kid and this soldiers, and it's about war and how we kind of indoctrinate our children with their toys and all. But I, you know, watching it now, it, and especially when they come into that, into that coliseum, and then the film really opens with those soldiers marching in and that drumbeat. I mean, I could just watch that. Oh, and a, a, there's a terrific, terrific film score to this movie um, that I could watch that. The film so the film score so nice that they used it twice. <laughs> yeah, did somebody steal it? Is that is that is that what happened? Somebody stole yeah, the film yeah. score. The guy who wrote the score wrote in quotes the score for three hundred uh, kind of got his hand slapped for <laughs> taking a lot of cues from Titus. But it's so good. It's, hey, if you're going to steal, you know, hey, steal from the best. So we soon learned that this boy who remains silent for the first part of the film, he's got some lines later on, is Titus's grandson, is what we're led to believe. Yeah, he becomes um, a character. There's a character in yeah. the play, young Lucius. is Lucius' son, Angus McFadden's son. And then yeah. this child kind of becomes him. But also, I think what he does in the first part of the film is he becomes us. He becomes the audience character. We're seeing the world through his eyes. We're understanding what's going on because, as you said, he's been picked up and sort of dropped into the middle of all this. And we're kind of like, okay, what's going on? And a lot of it in the opening has to do with – I I saw it as the contrast, obviously, between, as you were saying, the indoctrination of children into violence, but the idea of – 
yeah, that that's all fun violence. That's cartoon sounds in the background. That's uh, yeah. you know toys, GI Joes, whatever. But this is the real deal, and, and I, sort of forcing someone to come to terms with it face to face. And then he winds up with a with a Titus action figure, which I want. I want Titus action figures. He's got it when he's in the Coliseum. He's got the little action figure with the same helmet. Do you think they could make those? And the hands come off, and the heads come off. You know that would be great. <laughs> That would be, you know, I would, I would buy that. <laughs> Me and five other people, <laughs> especially with the hand. But we'll get to that yeah. later. <laughs> the opening of the film and the credits, as we said, is this, is this glorious march back into the Colosseum, the return of the legions to Rome, and the burial of the fallen. And this is sort of where um, history sort of diverges between who Titus Andronicus is and who Titus Andronicus in the play is, meaning that the the name has been borrowed from history. He was a general and a um, and a Caesar. Well, uh, no, there is no Titus Andronicus. Oh, see. Titus Andronicus is entirely fictional, and it's the yeah. only Shakespeare Roman – actually, not – well, yeah, it's well, Pericles isn't about the Pericles of, uh, of Greece and Shakespeare's, but uh, it's the only one that he doesn't really have a source for, and it's not actually from history. And then it's, but, 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 and, it, and it's great because it actually helps Tamor out a lot in being able to create this world because Shakespeare himself, you know, and, and perhaps whoever else wrote it with him, because it's, it, it may be a collaborative play, is creating this world that seems to be kind of late Rome with Goths, but not quite there. It's, it, it's got allusions all over the place throughout Roman history. And um, and then she kind of winds up doing a, a movie with that also spans, you know, hundreds or thousands of years, if not hundreds of years, like like the play seems to take cues from all over the place. But yeah, actually there is no Titus Andronicus. This is the this is the one you you know, you can use to catch people on to see how well they know their classical history, young man. <laughs> well, see, this is what confused me because there is, as you were saying, the whole thing with the Goths, and obviously the Goths would have been more towards the, the late Roman Empire, you know, uh, 300, 400 uh, AD is when they start to get into that. And then the Moors obviously don't come around until after the founding of Islam in the 600s. For some reason, I was always getting this confused with um, the, the, the destruction of the Second Temple in, in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And for some reason, I thought that this was based on that, which is uh, going back to Life of Brian a little bit, which is a couple of weeks ago, the whole thing about you know Judea and, and, and Rome and, and all of that stuff. The, the, the destruction of, of the temple and the, the whole wailing wall, if you're familiar with anything related to Israel, that all has to do with the destruction of the second temple by the Romans in 70. So for some reason, I thought that this play – was was stapled to more to that history, but then he kept pumping in all of this, you know, goths and moors and other things. And it did its job, pulled you in and made you make all these connections. And there's all kinds of connections like that in the play. I mean, perhaps not to the, you know, to the uh, 70 AD, the, the Second Temple destruction, but um, there's all kinds of classical references all through the play that, that make it seem like it is of all different times throughout the classical world. 
And uh, yeah. and I'm sure, and a lot of the audience then, sure you would have had some very you know educated people who knew the classical history, and probably most of you know, but still most of the audience you know in the theater thought that yeah, this is a play about that guy Titus Andronicus. Remember him? Yeah, we learned about him, and they never did. Yeah, I was trying to find out more about uh, Saturnius and his brother uh, yesterday, and it's like okay, the only thing I could really find that would kind of fit with the whole crisis of the third century was somebody who is pretty much for sure made up by um, the guy who wrote the Historia Augusta. So, yeah, I was like, okay, so there's some basis here, but it's really kind of vague, and, you know, it it was nice that he is mixing all this stuff in there, because, yeah, at the same time, I was like, wait a second, the Moors at this time? This seems kind of odd, but to throw all of this into this kind of soup, and then to set it in this timeless age, but utilize these, uh, you know, modern contrivances. I was like, okay, this kind of works. It kind of reminded me too, you know, you mentioned time bandits. I was reminded a little bit of Jesus Christ superstar with like the tanks and all Mm -hmm. this kind of stuff, because you have the Roman legions, but then you have machine guns, you have tanks, you have all this modern weaponry going on at the same time. But at no point Jesus Christ superstar do I imagine this is a kind of world that could exist in a sense, you know? No, I'm sure Jesus didn't exist. (laughs) At least not with tanks. Right. (laughs) So as they return back to to Rome and the presentation in the Colosseum, they have the prisoners, which includes, as I said, the the goth, the goth queen, Aaron the Moor, um, and then also gold. And you know the the treasures of what they've gone off to fight for, and don't forget Tamora's kids too. Yeah, so it's the Goth Queen and her kids. So Titus presents in his first, I guess, uh, speech to to the to the masses. There, yes, we're victorious. We've come home, but there's been losses. Hail Rome, victorious in thy morning weeds. Lo, as the bark that hath discharged her freight returns with precious lading to the bay, from whence at first she weighed her anchorage, cometh Andronicus, bound with laurel boughs, to resalute his country with his tears. Stand gracious to the rights that we intend. Romans, of five and twenty valiant sons, behold, the poor remains, alive and dead. These that survive, that Rome rewards with love. These that I bring unto their latest home, with burial amongst their ancestors. Ye Goths have given me leave to sheath my sword. Get into this uh, issue of the the burial and ritual, which is part of tradition within uh, Roman culture. And then not only that, but with the three sons that have come with uh, Tamara, the goth queen, that there is a sacrifice that is required because uh, this is the way we do things. This is tradition. And she is pleading with uh, Anthony Hopkins' character, Titus, uh, not to kill her son. I give him you, the noblest that survives, the eldest son of this distressing queen. Stay, Roman brethren! Gracious conqueror, victorious Titus, rule the tears I shed, the mother's tears and passion for her son. No! If thy sons were ever dear to thee, who think my son to be as dear to me? 
Suffice it not that we are brought to Rome to beautify your triumphs in return. Captain in thee in thy Roman yoke. Yeah. Must my sons be slaughtered in the streets? For valiant doings in their country's cause. Oh, if to fight for king and common we were piety in thine, it is in these. Andronicus, stain not thy tomb with blood. Wilt thou draw near the nature of the gods? Draw near them then and be merciful. But sweet mercy is nobility's true badge. Noble Titus, spare my firstborn son. Patience yourself, madam, and pardon me. These are their brethren whom your Goths beheld, alive and dead. And for their brethren slain, religiously they ask a sacrifice. To this your son is marked. Oh! Die he must to appease their groaning shadows that are gone. Away with him and make a fire straight. And with our swords upon a pile of wood, let's hew his limbs. The lady queen And he won't hear it because he's a very traditional guy. He's by-the-book kind of guy. And we learn that that by-the-book manner later on uh, leads to some problems. To which he has this great line. Cruel, irreligious piety. Her son is dragged off to be uh, basically uh, dismembered and disemboweled. Yeah, there's a lot of primogeniture that's going on in this film. I mean, and in the play, there's the whole thing that we're going to get to in a second about the death of the emperor. And we've got the two sons who are kind of vying for the title. And that is a case where primogeniture bites Everybody in the ass because Saturnius is the firstborn versus Bessianus, who's really the better guy. Uh, but Saturnius is the firstborn, so right there you go. And this whole idea of uh, Titus having to kill the firstborn son of Tamora because that's the way that things are, and just this way that he is falling in line with this piety and follow, following the the rules, quote-unquote, it really is kind of saying, like, maybe we shouldn't necessarily follow the rules uh, so strictly that maybe some of these things are a little bit outdated already. So let's let's think about these rather than just saying, that's the way it's supposed to be. Let's follow it up right here. And I was uh, reading about the play uh, quite a bit in I found out that uh, Titus lost 21 sons when he was <laughs> fighting the Goths. Okay, because it's like, yeah, he's got the, what, five dead bodies there when he comes in, but it's like 21 sons he had lost. When Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. He was fighting the Goths. So this guy's suffered quite a loss in this war. But he's also the wrong guy to make the case that don't sacrifice your sons. Oh, yeah. He's had 25. What does it matter if I lose 21 of them and then kill another? And The guy has 25 sons and one daughter. What are the odds of that, man? But, uh, <laughs> but, 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 it's, but it does serve. And the daughter looks like the milkman. Is, I don't is, get it. Is anyone placing <laughs> Vegas odds on that? I'd like to know what they are. But, you know, but it also does serve to, you know, it serves his character in the fact that, you know, he is willing to sacrifice, you know, his sons because, well, you know, I'll have 20 more. I just also see it as he knows what he is. He knows he's a general. He knows he's, a you know, of warrior class. He and his sons are to be that way. And it's, once again, just very much in this mind of tradition where this is what we do. This is how we do it. And we just keep going forward. And he talks about his losses and how much he's lost both in that opening and then when he meets up with Lavinia right there after the um, the dismemberment of Tamara's boy. And it's um, he understands his losses. Like, he's not stupid or ignorant to them. But he just figures, you know, this is this is the lot I've, I, I get. This is the lot I've, I've drawn in life. And this is what I have to put up with. So on with it. And it's, and it's about duty. It's about honor. I just did a quick search. Uh, the word honor is 46 times in the play. The word honor is, you know, said, and sometimes dishonor. Um, but, and that's, that's what it's about for Titus. And that's what having children is about. They're, they're there to serve the honor that you have already, your family has already established for the good of, you know, the Roman Empire. And as soon as this, you know, question of you mentioned that the two brothers are vying for the, for the uh, to be the emperor because the old emperor has died, and those two, his two sons, Bassianus and Saturninus, are are trying to be emperor. It Titus right away, even though it's clearly obvious to anybody watching these two guys uh, that it, it, he sides with the one who is the, the worst choice, but it seems to be. An issue of honor. He's the oldest born. He's so it should go to him. And Titus doesn't take the time to assess the situation to see which would be better for the empire. It's just a matter of you have to fulfill the obligations. You have to follow the rules. And so it goes to the first son. It's all about he, honor for him. And he was offered that position too. There's a, a, yeah. a question that comes up where I guess it was the Senate voted and said, well, yeah, you've been so good. We should just make you the emperor. And he's like, oh, no, I can't do that because, you know, it's all about secession. You know, Saturninus is the oldest and he should therefore be emperor. And this is a, a great uh, performance by Alan Cumming. I just, oh, boy, I, God, just uh, him as Saturninus is just amazing. Thus forward in my right, I thank you all and here dismiss you all. And to the love and favor of my country, commit myself, my person, and the cause! He is just balls to the walls in this, and it, it's one of those performances that really makes me appreciate Alan Cumming. I mean, every once in a while, I forget how good he is, and this one really reminds me. And I was really glad to see the guy who plays his brother, and uh, James Frain, 
who, to me, he is really underappreciated when it comes to acting. In fact, I, I think that we should do um, uh, The Count of Monte Cristo next year because he is so wonderful in that as, as this very duplicitous character that really kind of shows his range all the way around. Excellent. He's had lots of British TV. I watch him on, and he is just fantastic. He just—he's a great Macbeth. There's, there's the Macbeth on the estate, it's called, and it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's just the play Macbeth set on this, you know, the, the you know, the projects of you know, of England on the, on the, in this estate housing, and he has a great Macbeth in that from like uh, the 80s or something on TV. It was. I was really surprised to see Jessica Lange as Tamora, the Queen of the Goths, and I guess if there's one place where they kind of fell down was not to do like the modern interpretation of a goth as the Visigoths, you know, that would have been awesome. Like Jessica Lang with the really heavy makeup, smoking a clove cigarette, listening to like, you know, dead can dance and stuff. But, you know, I guess we can't take everything so literally, but she was looking really good in this. And then, uh, and I had never really seen her do anything as heavy as like Shakespeare. You know, I'm more used to her in like her King Kong role. So seeing her in this, I was very impressed. Yeah, she's, I don't think she's ever done a, a, this. I think it's the only Shakespeare film she's done. And, uh, and she is really good. She handled the verse, you know, very well. And, you know, uh, um, uh, so I was I was really happy to see her do so well in it too. So I'm in a cafe in Baltimore. Actually, I'm at a uh, a place where they serve crab. I know that's crazy in Baltimore, right? And it's me and and Andrea and, and Skiz, and then uh, these three girls at this other table. And the girls have to be like I don't know, 25 years old. I think they worked somewhere around there. They were on their lunch break or whatever, and they were talking about um, what's that uh, uh, American Horror Story. Story and talking about Jessica Lang, and it was so funny to hear them because they're like, "She's so old, but she's so hot." I don't get it. She's so old, but she's just so hot. And I was just like, "Okay, she, kids." She's the, Amer- <laughs> she's the American Helen Mirren. Yes. <laughs> Good call. Go back to Caligula if you want to hear Mike Wex rhapsodic about the modern <laughs> Helen Mirren as opposed to the older Helen Mirren. Wax. <laughs> I really love this setup in this whole debate in terms of who uh, will become the next emperor. And it starts with basically like sort of parades and both of Saturninus and his brother are in opposite cars and they're driving through the streets to get to this uh, one building, which from what Julie Taymor said on the commentary is a, a piece of architecture that was built during during Mussolini's time, yeah, and, Mussolini had it built. It was part yeah. of his, you know, rebuilding thing to show, that, you know, his power. Yeah, and this whole the section Palazza, right here, it's, it's the Palazzo de Civilitas. I'm pretty sure it's called. So and it's and this, just that whole section right there is so 1930s. It is so mm-hmm. fascist Italy that I. It's it's incredible. It's it's fascist Italy and and Nazi Germany. Those you know triumph of the wills sort of you know newsreels you've yeah. seen in the past. Well, that's where I see this 30s and 50s thing kind of coming together, because I see Saturninus as being much more 1930s and fitting into that fascist world, where I, as I see his brother as being more of this 50s, maybe even 60s kind of a, a world where he seemed like, I won't say American, he seemed, but it, it felt more Camelot, it felt more like this is the future kind of thing, and then that, you know, Titus goes for the 30s is really telling to me. One of the things I love about it is, as a Shakespeare guy is 
all through this film, there's all kinds of nods to other Shakespeare produ- famous Shakespeare productions, whether on film or on stage. And the very first modern day, modern dress production of Shakespeare um, is Orson Welles's Julius. See, I think it's the first one. Is Orson Welles's Julius Caesar in in, in the 30s, and he uses that, and, he's, and, and it was famous for that, and it's still famous for it, for using this kind of fascist look for his representation of Rome and Caesar and the uplight and the way they and they do the salute, the way they're on podiums giving speeches. Alassie Taymor used that. That's you know, she's she's especially coming from the stage, she's very much aware of that. Shakespeare was done that way, and it's one of those little nods we get to the Shakespeare tradition, uh, performing tradition, that she puts in there as well. And of course, it works so well for this film. Yes. Yes. Well, this kind of introduces another problem here, because we've got Saturninus, who kind of as thanks to uh, Titus for giving him his support, is like, oh, well, hey, I'm going to kind of keep it in the family here, and I'll marry your daughter, I'll marry uh, Lavina here, and that's not going to necessarily work out so well, because she is betrothed to his brother, to Bassinius, so there, again, becomes this whole conflict of what is right in Titus's mind, because I don't care if, uh, you know, how this is, but there's this whole thing where they kind of spirit Lavinia and Bassinius away, and the brothers help out do it, uh, help him to do it, and that's when Titus kind of snaps and kills one of his own sons just because that was not right in the the eyes of tradition. Titus and Teviev have kind of really into this whole tradition thing. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition! It's his interpretation of of kind of, you know, there are some, like, if the emperor says so, that seems to take precedence over family honor. You know, it was clearly a situation of family honor and that her being taken from Bassani. And, but as far as Titus is concerned, there's, you know, you, there's, there's one thing you have to take care of first, I guess, and that's emperor and Rome, the empire. And then, you know, after that, then you can start to address other things, but that's what they break. And clearly, Saturninus looks, you know, in the film, looks over and sees, and he knows Bassianus and Livinia are together, and it's not as if he wants her. He's just, this is another way for him to you know, take something from his brother. And that son who he killed, he will not allow to be buried in the family crypt because of that disrespect, that lack of honor. My lord, you are unjust! And more than so, in wrongful quarrel you have slain your son. Nor thou nor he are any sons of mine. My sons would never so dishonor me. Traitor! Restore Lavinia to the emperor! Dead, if you will, but not to be his wife. That is another's lawful, promised love. Well, they, but they do make him. He says no, but then they kind of, they kind of almost force him to it. You know, to the position that he has to relent because. Well, that's a question. Why does he, in the end, say? Yeah, I maybe mean, he says something like, you know, all right, well, if you lay him in there, then you know, I'll never be in there, or something like that. He says, but it's you know. Um, I guess he's left with the option of, well, I'll either kill all of my sons and my brother, <laughs> or I'll just let them put the body here. Well, he does say something that's really kind of telling, isn't it? Like, um, you know, f- okay, we'll put him in here, and then I'll be next. Father, 
And in that name doth nature speak. Dear father, soul and substance of us all. Renowned Titus, more than half my soul. Rise, Marcus, rise. The dismal stays this thread I saw. To be dishonored by my sons in Rome. Well, bury him. Bury me the next. Because there was one essay that I read where it was like, oh, well, this kind of shows that Titus almost has like a death wish, and it really kind of starts at this moment on. And I didn't necessarily agree with the essay, but I was just like, okay, I can kind of see that this is like the the chink in his armor, you know, that he gives in at this moment, because otherwise he has not given in to anything. The big question, I think, in the film and always in the stage productions is, is Titus crazy? Or does he go insane? And at what point does he go insane? And this could be, you know, the kind of moment where, and the film plays this up because he stabs his son and, and you get this close-up on Anthony Hopkins' face that's, that's not a realization of what he's done yet, that he's... That, he, that it's almost this blank expression that, yeah, I've just killed this guy who got in my way, who did something wrong. Not that he has killed his son. And so is that, that begs the question that, is that one of the moments that shows that this is a guy who really is not in touch with reality, is not in touch with what's going on around him, that he doesn't recognize the gravity of what he's just done. And then it's only, you know, a short few more steps to him being completely insane. One of the things that comes up constantly in this play is this whole idea of we have the goths there, we have the other, you know, and they are represented by them being other in several ways. I mean, obviously Aaron the Moor carries his otherness on his skin, but the goths really kind of carry it in their hair. They're the only blonde people that are in this film are uh, the goths Um, in the whole way that again going back to this dichotomy thing we have this whole idea of you know are you um, you know thou art a Roman be not hello it is Ryan and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Herborous, it's this whole thing that the goths are there to show us how not to be, that we are Romans, we are proud. Proper, we follow the rules, and it's hilarious because you know it's like be Roman, don't be a barbarian. And here we have Titus killing his own son in order to follow what a good Roman should be. One of the most barbarous acts, you know, the first barbarous act to really, well, second after the death of uh, Tamora's kid. But again, another thing where it was absolutely barbarous that, you know, all of these horrible things are being done and they're being done by the, the proper Romans. Also have to remember at this time in history, 
history when the play was written 400 odd years ago. Um, not to say that there were honor killings then, but you know, parents could pretty much get away with quite a bit when it came to dealing with their kids if they got out of line. Oh yeah, well we'll definitely be talking about that in the third act. <laughs> well, you know, a great movie or play is one where you are forced to rank how barbarous each act in it was, and which is the most and which is the least barbarous, because there are so many in this play. Well, yeah, definitely, definitely, we're going to get into a lot more when it comes to the second act because this, to me, is where you know the blood starts really flowing. So at this point, Lavinia runs off with her with the brother of Saturninus, and Saturninus decides, well. I got a goth queen here. Maybe I should just marry her. <laughs> in our great gold metallic breast, you know, plate. So that looks With awesome. With her tattoos her. and everything. It's pretty awesome. And I love the fact that um, she comes in and sort of brokers a deal. Oh, you know, everything's okay. And, you know, we're going to be all right. And she has this great, in film, it's a cutaway. I'm sure on stage it's handled differently. Tamara, the goth queen, just turns to the camera and says, I'll find a day to massacre them all and raise their faction and their family, the cruel father and his traitorous sons to whom I sued for my dear son's life and make them know what it is to let a queen kneel in the streets and beg for grace in vain. And just the idea that for her, marrying Saturninus now puts her in a position where she can get close to Titus and get the payback for the death and destruction of her eldest son. In the play text, it's just it's her speaking to Saturninus, and she still is at that point as we're watching the film. But it's the first time in the film that, and especially as you know, the evil tackling villain kind of way, she looks at the screen and tells us what's going on about this evil plot. And again, right away, I say, you know, there's a Shakespeare move in that not only is that done on stage often, but it's most famously done in Olivier's Richard III and his soliloquies to the audience, directly to the camera, talking to us and, and, you know, kind of, you know, telling us all the evil things that he's going to do and laughing about them. And isn't this great fun? And Tamor uses that. And as soon as she does that with, with, with Tamora, then in the next scene, you have Aaron doing it for the rest of the film. And then it's really, you know, uh, almost obvious to me that this is a nod to that, uh, to, to Olivier's Richard III facing the screen. It's, it's so much more... You can do it on stage, and actors do it on stage looking at the audience, but boy, there's nothing like a film villain looking right at you and telling you all the awful things they're going to do. That is so thrilling. And how much he enjoys it. Yeah, yeah. and especially Aaron the Moore, who we learn is the, the lover of Tamara, and they're off doing their thing. But he basically explains in this, as you said, to the camera situation where it's like, okay, uh, here's the deal. This is what's going on, and... Um, Get ready, because it's going to get fun. And Mm -hmm. you know more than uh, I do in terms of the order in which these plays were written. It's my understanding that this one was one of the earlier ones, Titus Andronicus. And when I look at Aaron the Moor and I look at what he does through this film, I've never seen a stage version of it. It feels like, like you were saying, Richard III, it feels like Iago from Othello. It feels like that. Yeah, it's an early play. It's one of the first plays Shakespeare wrote. 
Uh, we don't know the exact order of those first few, but it's it's one of the first few that he wrote. It may be collaborative because uh, it seems like those early plays were uh, collaborative as he's coming into his own and learning to be a writer with this company. They would write plays, very common practice in Elizabethan theater to have multiple authors on one play. Um, but we have no evidence of that. That's only just supposed and because the first act especially really reads like a couple other authors. Um, but it's also a play that comes out at a time in this, you know, in the in the 1590s in England, where the revenge play, and the bloody revenge play, is the most popular play you can put on the stage. Marlowe has great success with this um, in *The Jewel of Malta*, um, and uh, before him, uh, Thomas Kidd's *Spanish Tragedy* is the most famous revenge play of you know uh, of that period. And they all have these kind of elaborate plots where someone's murdered and and then there and there's this elaborate plot to get revenge and it's usually very bloody and it's there's usually a lot of violence on stage and the interesting thing i think about titus andronicus is something that shakespeare does throughout his career is that he takes something that's popular and he ratchets it up to such a high level that people in the audience had to be shocked like oh my gosh i can't believe that just happened so this is like, uh, for example, uh, tying a cop into a chair and then cutting off his ear? Look, it, I'm not going to bullshit you, okay? I don't really give a good fuck what you know or don't know. But I'm going to torture you anyway. Regardless, I have to get information. It's amusing uh, to me to torture a cop. You can say anything you want, because I've heard it all before. All you can do is pray for a quick death. Which you ain't gonna get. (laughs) It is not. And it's funny, because... It is so true that I, you know, in reading a lot of criticism, Shakespeare's scholars love to say, love to compare this film, at least, to Tarantino. And it's so not a Tarantino film. I mean, you know, there's, you know, there's, the violence is done in a much different way. But they love, it's so easy for them, isn't it? Like, wow, you know, oh, it's Tarantino. I hate that. Well, maybe it's a a bride who goes off and tries to, kill her way through a whole room full of uh, the crazy 88. Here I am saying that, you know, there's all these kind of nods to, you know, other Shakespeare films and stage traditions that Taymor, I think, adds to it. And perhaps that's the Tarantino-esque element that, you know, but it's not. She's, of course, much more original in her design and and, and putting this together. Well, actually, Taymor had a little comment about uh, Pulp Fiction when people are trying to um, compare it to, compare her film to Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, and she said, I am so sick of stories like Pulp Fiction where you have a bunch of low lives being violent in a stereotypical 
whole low-life way and no real story. It's okay to have the Matrix and blow everybody up and laugh at Pulp Fiction, but whoa, if you try to do something that's beautiful, like sex, it's weird and it's so sick. So she was definitely aware of Tarantino being a modern day filmmaker and everything. And this is 90, 99 that this comes out. And when was Pulp Fiction? 94. So yeah, she was definitely aware of that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, Ed, you had mentioned that, um, there were no other film adaptations of Titus Andronicus, but looking around, I found a few others. Uh, are, that, actually, yeah. There yeah. Was, I, there's no feature film that came and hit theaters. There's been a couple low budgets, and there's the BBC TV one, of course. Right. And I tried to watch one of these um, other versions of Titus Andronicus. Is that the one? Uh, what's his name? Did it? Uh, the Candy Girl in it? I forget her name. God. It was... The 1999 one, where the 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 video box says, you know, torture, dismemberment, murder, conspiracy, dementia, cannibalism, and fantasized and, and fantasized and more. There's a six minute there's a six minute trailer of that on YouTube, and which I watched, and that, that six minute trailer is about all I want to see of that. Yeah, <laughs> Christopher Dunn. That's what that's his name it. was. Yeah. Dunn. Yeah. Oh. God, and just, uh, yeah. But it looked like he had a great time making it. That looked like, yeah. oh my God, you guys must have had a blast filming this. <laughs> yeah, it probably was, but, uh, yeah. Just show me your best six minutes. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's, all, that's, that's all you need. Yeah. Can I, can I just say this, too, back to the violence, in that um, not only is there this stage tradition of, 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 of violent plays, that this is part of this revenge tragedy you know, thing, but when we watch a movie like this now, it, it is so, and not all of this. I think Tamor's pretty serious with it. That that that. But there is also in this film an element of high camp. That that the that the violence is so extreme that it becomes funny to us. Now, not that there may not have been a couple moments in Shakespeare's day when this play was performed that seemed funny because the violence was so extreme, but far fewer than I think we would imagine because. Not just the stage tradition, but this is a time when this play is written where people are publicly tortured and, you know, uh, drawn and quartered and disemboweled in public. This is still a time when people are tortured and not just like wimpy waterboarding kind of torture. People were really tortured, bloody and burning, and and that's not a... That's not an abstract thing to this audience where they could see an extreme moment of violence and think that's funny, hands being chopped off or something like that, because these things very much happened to, you know, in their society and they knew of this. So the violence for them is a lot more serious than I think it's almost impossible to do Titus Andronicus today and not have some level of camp in it. Um, but, but for, you know, as the play is written, um, that's not. There's only a couple moments in the play where I think there's a nod to the audience that there's a wink that isn't this, you know, ironically funny. So Aaron goes off to meet with the Goth Boys and starts <laughs> talking to them about uh, what's going on, and they seem very much uh, into the whole concept of Lavinia. And the question is. Do they just seem into it because they're horny teenagers, or do they seem into it because they're horny teenagers plus 
they really want revenge by, you know, raping her. To me, it's almost more the horny teenagers. I don't necessarily see the revenge stuff in here. These guys, these two guys seem to be the most two-dimensional villains of the play for me. Yeah, they just want to do whatever they want to do, have fun, you know, wreaking havoc on the world around them. Yeah, they're definitely like, you know, proto-anarchists. They're barbarians, damn it. Well, let's not forget about Aaron and his little bag of gold, too. That's the first time that we see him before he's even talking to the brothers, talking about this bag of gold that he's planting. And there was a really nice uh, write-up of this I, I read, talking about the different use of holes and how there's this hole here in the ground, and shortly we'll have another hole in the ground, and then even kind of this whole use of the... Um, this is really one of the few times, if memory serves, where we get a lot of sex in this act. So we can almost talk about the woman's body and, and the holes there. Because shortly after Aaron is doing this stuff is when Tamora kind of shows up and is just like, hey, let, let's do it right here. And it's like, it's almost like, woman, I, I'm, I'm plotting my evil stuff. Just leave me alone for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is the, the the moment. This is the part of the play or the part of the film for me. It all takes place out in this wilderness. Again, going, you know, talking about the barbarous versus the civilization that we have back in, in Rome here, but out in this barbarous wilderness and just all of these things coming together. It's like almost. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power. Loyalty. And luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Everybody seems to come to Aaron. We've got Tamora coming to him, and then we've got the brothers coming to him, and shortly we're going to have uh, Lavinia and and uh, Bassini is coming to him, and it's just like all this stuff is happening. I mean, obviously on stage, you want all the things to come to the mm-hmm. one actor, but you know this all kind of just happens to, to happen in this film, that all of these events transpire. It just shows what a great uh, plotter and schemer he is because he can get everyone to do his bidding. He pulls the strings. Oh, yeah. He's totally that guy. Yeah, it's a nice touch because it doesn't become apparent until that moment. It seems as if it's going to be Saturninus and Tamora who are kind of, you know, engineering everything. And it's at that moment that you begin to realize that everything bad that happens to Andronicus' family, it's all Aaron. He's He's plotting everything from behind the scenes, even from behind Tamora, who he's supposed to be with. He's kind of manipulating everyone all along. 
Which is funny because Aaron, as far as I know, has no beef with Titus. Like, there's nothing there. Like, they they barely have a connection. There's all these people in between Aaron and Titus as far as the way that, you know, these relationships are. But yeah, he's just messing with Titus the entire time. Evil for evil's sake. He just enjoys doing it. Yeah, if I could do 10,000 more times, 10,000 more evil things, yeah. I've done a thousand dreadful things as willingly as one would kill a fly. And nothing grieves me heartily indeed. But then I cannot do 10,000 more. At the end, he says, if I ever did a good thing, I regret it. <laughs> so it's around this point, which is about an hour into the film, where the young boys and Lavinia happens to be there and her husband has gone off and we we soon find that he's he's been killed through as you were saying Mike another hole in the ground and there's this well, whole and then thrown in the hole yeah. yeah right and there's this whole thing about um pleading with uh Tamara you know you're a woman please you know don't let them do this to me in terms of the uh the the rape that she's about to uh to have they're clearly the, threatening to rape her, and yeah, she's pleading to Tamara. Which is really singing out of the other side of her mouth, because just shortly before this, Basinius and, and uh, Lavinia come upon Tamora and Aaron, and they're just like, oh, hey, look what we got here. This is kind of cozy, and Lavinia is just railing and just laying into Tamora and just being so catty. <laughs> so, I mean, it is... I won't say that her rape is justified because it never is, but it is just like one of these really kind of odd things like Lavinia to me, you know, maybe she should have been more virtuous and nice and this kind of stuff, but she is not, she is claws out against Tamora on this. And then it's a a small moment and it's, you know, and it's, it's, it's her and her husband, catching this woman with her lover after her husband, the emperor, has kind of done all this bad stuff. And when they catch her, of course, they say some things. And she's, you know, to Lavinia's purposes, she's still the enemy. She's the conquered queen that her father went and captured. So um, uh, I, I, I don't see the, the situation as really comparable at all. I mean, she's not, at no point would Lavinia in this um, until she's, you know, uh, abused herself. But early in this play, does she ever kind of wish harm on anyone? It seems that that she'll she'll insult the queen there, but she doesn't. She's not saying, you know, she's not kind of hoping her brothers will come and you know rape and mutilate her. You know what I mean? Which which Lavinia knows is about to happen to her. The interesting thing about it is that I'm waiting for the moment in Jessica Lange's performance where she shows some kind of realization that, oh my gosh, this is going to happen, and then the steely resolve come up, and I don't see it. I see her being mean the entire, like, ice the entire time, that, yeah, they're going to they're gonna destroy you, and it's your own fault, because your father killed my son when I cried for him, you know? So that's, 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 that's a, it, it's a, a really rough way to do it. So there's no, you, I, you get no mercy in her at all. No, she does have ice in her, in her blood. But that's what I think makes the character in this film so interesting is that by the time you do get to the end, you really don't know 
who you like because <laughs> they're yeah. all doing you know this horrible stuff because they can't like i said they can't get past their own thing like titus as we said is very big on tradition and tamara just burns with vengeance and doesn't really give a damn about anything else and the revenge plots just keep building and building she seems much more motivated tamora seems much more motivated than saturninus because it's like we kind of lose saturninus for a little bit during this play and we don't necessarily see him doing much of anything you know he's just not on screen and this really becomes more of the tamora show which i think is appropriate because she seems to have much more motivation than saturninus i mean it's like okay yeah i'm emperor i'm i'm good and it's only really when his reign starts to be um threatened uh, that he is provoked into any, any kind of action but otherwise he's just like i'm here i'm being cool i'm got my cool haircut and everything and i'm gonna sit here on this big hand throne and all this kind of stuff with my big wolf behind me and i'll be a dick and stuff but he's not doing a whole lot of stuff but he does start to you know and then the one thing a little earlier that he comes he comes right to you know titus and says you know you guys are in trouble now, and I'm going to make sure that you pay. And it's Tamora who pulls him aside and says, oh, no, 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 just pretend that everything is okay. So she kind of asserts herself and forces him to take a back seat and not do anything so she can plot her own revenge. She doesn't want Saturninus to do anything. Saturninus has one, the only reason Saturninus has to to challenge or hurt, you know, the, the Andronicus family is because they pose a threat to his political power. They are powerful, and people like them. And if he can get rid of them, then he will, and he'll be more secure. But he turns that over to her to do, you know, to, 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 to get to, to, you know, for her revenge. But it's also, for him, it's getting rid of, you know, a political rival. Yeah, she's like the Lady Macbeth who doesn't go crazy. She just stays, yeah, stays up you know, scheming the yeah. entire time. So by this time, we get the murder and discovery of Vassianus is dead, Saturninus's brother. And it's alleged through this burial of the bag of gold and all of this stuff and what Aaron has told us that he was going to frame Titus and his family for this murder. There's this great scene where Titus Anthony Hopkins is sort of in the middle of this road and these people are walking by. We don't see their faces, but he's... He's sort of pleading to them and talking to them about, you know, I've shed this blood, I've lost my sons, I've done all of this stuff for you, and and now you're all turning your back on me. And they take away his uh, his other two sons, and I think the only one that's left is Lucius, played by Angus McFadden. And a beautiful scene, the crossroads and the stone walkways, and, and there's some great location shot that they found, and he's just weeping on the ground, his tears going into the stones. Um, and uh, left alone, everybody, the prisoners have gone past and everyone has walked on by and the whole city has turned their back on him now that, you know, uh, his, his, his family is now in disgrace and no one's listening to him and, and not listening to the person who not long ago, they all said, Hey, be our emperor. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. He, he has a really quick decline here. And it's just kind of like, you know, every every other celebrity's decline where it's like, oh, as soon as one bad thing comes out about you, it's like, all right. You know, people are taking to Twitter and just slamming this guy. And it's like, you know, next thing you know, you're on the Roman road. 
he says, you know, I've lost many sons, and they died fighting for Rome, and that's an honorable thing, and I have no problem with that. And this is the moment where he finally realizes, I guess, that which he didn't realize earlier when he killed one of his sons, this is the moment he realizes that, oh my God, my sons are going to die, and it's not they're not dying for the honor of the family or the honor of Rome. They're just convicted criminals, and that is, you know, tragic to him that they, that that's how his sons would die. That's the biggest disgrace. And there's this sort of, I guess, um, psychological, there are these several different scenes that, that Tamor does throughout the film that sort of give us this psychological perspective of the characters. And, and in this one, in this section, we see um, Mutius, who is the, the son that he killed by his own hand, sort of put on this uh, altar and has this like sheep's body kind of thing. And I get this crossover idea now where we're starting to see something like Isaac and Abraham kind of thing yeah. where it's like sacrificing your own child. But in this case, instead of God saying, no, I'm just messing with you. I just want to see if you do it. He actually did go through with it and has this, um, like he said, he, he's sort of realizing, well, what did I really do it for? Yeah. And imagine what it would be like had for Abraham, had he actually gone through with the fact that is that a moment where then you would become insane? And this, and clearly the way Hopkins portrays it is that, you know, he, you know, this is the moment of film where he really starts to go off the rails. And there's right on top of that, as Mike said, the piling on is Lavinia shows up with Titus's brother, and he's got this great line in there. But who comes with our brother Marcus here? Titus, prepare thy aged eyes to weep. Or if not so, thy noble heart to break. I bring consuming sorrow to thine age. Will it consume me? Let me see it then. This was thy daughter. Why, Marcus, so she is. Be done it, boy! Arise and look upon her! Lavinia, what accursed hand hath made thee handless in thy father's sight? What fool hath added water to the sea, or brought a torch to bright burning Troy? My grief was at the height before thou camest, and now like Nihilus it disdaineth bounds. Give me a sword, I'll chop off my hands too, for they have fought for Rome and all in vain. In bootless prayer have they been held up, and they have... Left me to a feckless suit! Now all the service I require of them is that the one will help to cut the other! You know, it's like I'm already low enough. You really can't do anything to me at this point. I've already kind of hit bottom. The moment before that, when she's discovered, that I think is 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 one of the best things in this movie. I that, totally agree. You, you, you know, it, it's it's the, shit, the long shot on Comfier's face, and she's standing there. She uh, She's been, her hands cut off, and her tongue cut out by Chiron and Demetrius, so she can't tell anyone what who raped her. Um, and Calmfior comes up, and this is a long, this is a long-standing problem in in the stage history of Titus Andronicus, because her uncle comes on the scene, Marcus Andronicus, and sees her, and then proceeds to go into this long speech. It must be seventy lines long or something. It's ridiculous, describing how awful she looks, and then going through all these classical references to, you know, women being, you know, uh, uh, 
hurt or ravished and 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 it's and all you can think is guy get her help her will you give her a bandage or something i mean and and it, it, and so what usually happens is that stage directors just wind up cutting the speech they give them a couple lines at the beginning of the couple at the end and Tamor, very interestingly instead of just giving him a couple lines and having him go to her she still uses all that time and i and I, and i looked at the i rewatched it and i looked at the timer it is a 27 second shot of marcus's face just taking in the horror at, at, of of what has been done to his niece doesn't cut back to anything we get 27 second shot on his face. The camera zooms in a little bit and then zooms back out. And beautifully acted and very powerful and so much more powerful than seeing more of her mutilated in this highly stylized way and with sticks, you know, coming out of her stumps. Um, and just uh, so perfectly done. And uh, that's something that Tamar can really only do on a film, that you can't kind of do that on the stage so much. Um, and uh, and I, a great choice for dealing with that scene and how to accentuate the horror and the grief that would occur at this moment. Yeah, just amazing performances all the way around. Colin Fjord. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In here as Marcus Andronicus and um, Laura Frazier, who now, after all of that uh, smack talk she was doing against Mora, no more lines in the play. And it's interesting you talk about the, the twigs on the arms, which to me is one of the most striking images and everything, other than her opening her mouth to that kind of silent scream. Slow motion blood, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Which looked at first, I thought it was a ribbon, but then it, you know, it was like, no, that's not a ribbon. It's just, you know, blood coming out. And, uh, just, uh, it's interesting that her, twigs kind of grow into the real thing later on we've got these wooden hands that uh, young lucius helps her out with so it's it's interesting there and one of the first moments where we have hands being cut off which will be a a theme in in the movie other than star wars i can't think of another play or film that i've seen more hands being cut off in which leads us to that hand cut off and Aaron comes to Titus and says, I have a message for you. Titus Andronicus, my lord the emperor sends thee this word, that if thou love thy sons, let Marcus, Lucius, or thyself, O Titus, or any one of you, chop off your hand and send it to the king. He, for the same, will send thee hither both thy sons alive, and that shall be the ransom for their fault. 
Oh, gracious Emperor, oh, gentle Aaron, did ever raven sing so like a lark? With all my heart, I'll send his majesty my hand. So there's this whole debate between Marcus and and, uh, <laughs> and Lucius about who's gonna, yeah, who's going to do it. Like, oh, no, I'll, I'll, take mine. Yeah, I'll cut my hand off. No, I'll cut my hand off. And um, Titus, has, Titus has to trick them <laughs> to get his own hand cut off. Right. Father, for that noble hand of thine that hath thrown down so many enemies shall not be sent. My hand will set the turn. My youth can better spare my blood than you. Which of your mine shall save my brother's life? My hand hath been but idle. Let it serve to ransom my two nephews from their death. Nay, come, agree to whose hand shall go along, for fear they die before their pardon come. My hand shall go. By heaven it shall not go. Now let me show a brother's love to thee. Agreed between you. I will spare my hand. Great little bit of trickery here. And exactly. then, of course, then the great, you know, then, the, then the awful, ironic, tragic moment happens, and then Aaron sends back not his sons, of course, but their heads in exchange for the hand, and sends the hand back as well. Worthy Andronicus, ill art thou repaid for that good hand thou sentst the emperor. Here are the heads of thy two noble sons. And here's thy hand in scorn to thee sent back. And that moment of reveal is so great. This whole thing and the clown showing up and the little girl and them setting up the chairs and everything just to reveal the heads and the hand. It's like, oh, wow. What, what did she, she called a penny arcade horror, I think, is what the, is how Tamor described that scene and scenes like that in her production and film. Penny arcade horror. Ugh. And just that whole scene with them doing the reveal, and then Titus starts laughing. <laughs> Why dost thou laugh? <laughs> Why, I have not another tear to shed. Besides, this sorrow is the enemy. And would usurp upon my watery eyes? Make them blind with tributary tears. Then which way shall I find Revenger's cave? For these two heads do seem to speak to me. And threat me I shall never come to bliss. Till all these mischiefs be returned again. Even in their throats that have committed them. He is now crazy. And then, and then it's, it, I think it is then, just after that, you see him and it's sitting in a tub, you know, draw, drawing bloody pictures of faces and tearing them up and throwing them away and then having another one of those strange montage, you know, uh, uh, dreams about, uh, I forget what this one is about. Um, but that's uh, when he is visited by revenge, yeah, murder, revenge. and rape. Yeah. Yes. Which was, it's absolutely gorgeous the way that this is filmed and everything. And then I was so surprised when they cut to the outside and there's, uh, cause I could recognize Jessica Lang as revenge in this kind of dream sequence. And it was almost like she was speaking to him, um, like a witch or something kind of invading his thoughts. And then when he gets out of the tub and goes out and she's there with her two sons dressed in drag in this kind of tiger outfit again with the tigers and the and the other one is uh, much more body and everything and she's got these kitchen knives kind of stuck in her her headpiece and her big pointed hands again recalling the whole severed hand thing it was just like okay this is really getting a little weird but i like it 
Art thou revenge? And art thou sent me to be a torment to mine enemies? I am. Therefore come down and welcome me and my ministers. Good Lord. How like the Empress' sons they are. And you the Empress. <laughs> but we worldly men have miserable, mad, mistaking eyes. How? Oh, a sweet revenge. <laughs> now do I come to thee. And if one arm's embracement will content thee, I will embrace thee in it. By and by. <laughs> and just, uh, and, and this kind of, and, and it's bizarro, but, 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 but also horrible and, and still emotional. I think it really works. And, um, and she seems, and she, you know, thinks that he really thinks I am revenge personified. And this really is rape and murder. And he's all along saying that like, Oh, it looks like tomorrow. And these look like your sons. And he goes, and then he decides to go along with it. And, and she's so, and, and this is a moment where, where we suddenly realize she's either so dumb, which I don't think they're saying is it, but she's so blinded by her own, um, uh, hubris to get her own revenge that she doesn't realize that he knows who you are. <laughs> And she leaves her sons with him. Well, that's the the thing that gets me because you said like after he cuts off his hand or the the heads arrive that he goes crazy. And I think there's this great thing of we don't know if he is crazy or if he's not. And I want to say that like Hopkins was playing it so that he was, but Tamor is saying maybe that he wasn't, or I might have that reversed. I think they had this discussion, Hopkins and Tamor, and I think she she really believed that he was crazy and he did not. I, I don't think it was the other way around. Um, okay. And and that's that's a long standing thing with this in the tradition of this play too is whether he's crazy or whether he's playing crazy, or the third option is whether he's playing crazy but also going crazy at the same time. Yeah, that it's just it, I like that complexity as far as that goes, and that scene in particular where he goes out and he's with revenge, rape, and murder, and it's like okay, is he? Isn't he? It was nice to really not know in that scene and to be able to to play it in your head both ways. Because you've got him in the tub beforehand and then having visions, so there's, there is clearly some mental instability going on, and yet he's not so far gone. Or perhaps it's revenge itself that can anchor him enough that he can still, you know, get them and, 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 and create this little plot to, you know, get his own revenge. The, the old, I guess the return revenge. I mean, it's, it's like revenge keeps going back and forth. So this was, if memory serves, it was right around this scene that, you know, you were talking about, um, uh, Lavinia getting these new hands and there's this uh, whole eating thing that is going on here. And we have, uh, this is the first time I think young Lucius, the grandson from the beginning, who has just been kind of the silent observer throughout almost the entire play up to this point when he finally gets a line and he kills this fly. And I think they moved this from the, the play. They kind of switched it so that it was Lucius to young Lucius. Yeah. And there's this exchange between, um, Titus and young Lucius about this fly and, you know, wh why did you kill this fly? What about the, the, you know, the fly's parents and... What does thou strike at Lucius with thy knife? At that that I have killed, my lord, a fly. Out on thee, murderer! Curse my heart! A deed of death done on the innocent becomes not Titus grandson. Get thee gone! I see that not for my company. Alas, my lord, I have but killed a fly. But how if that fly had a father and mother? 
How would they hang their slender gilded wings and buzz lamenting doings in the air? Poor, harmless fly. With this pretty buzzing melody came here to make us merry and thou killed him. Pardon me, sir. Hmm? It was a black, ill-favoured fly. Like to the Empress Maul. Therefore I killed him. Oh. 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 <laughs> Pardon me for reprehending thee. For thou hast done a charitable deed. Give me thy knife. I will insult on him, flattering myself as if it were the more. Come hither purposely to poison me. This for thyself, and that's for Tamarine! <laughs> <laughs> ah, Sarah. As yet I think we are not brought so low. But that between us we can kill a fly that comes in likeness of a coal black moor. But this is also the part where, if memory serves, we've got Titus feeding Lavinia because she can't eat with her her fake hands and everything, which will kind of come back at the end, which I think is kind of nice that we have this like foreshadowing at this part of, of Titus being this feeder. Yeah, but give the line. The, the line was originally, and his brother says it, you know, that 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 that, um, that, he, that the fly was, you know, evil, and that's why I killed it. And Titus, like, oh, that's great. Then, you know, um, it's a good thing that we killed it. And but it's part of her setting us up because if if, if this long, young Lucius is us, you know, it, it represents the viewer, you know, as this kid out of the story being brought into it. Then, um, uh, what kind of changes would he undergo, you know, during this experience? And he not only has that line, but then a little later when they find out who it is, when Lavinia finally, you know, was able to tell them by just getting a stick and writing Demetrius and Chiron and, and actually showing them in a book about scenes being raped in, in Ovid, um, that, that the young boy says, you know, yeah, we need to go get these guys. I'll help you kill them. If we're supposed to identify with him, then uh, is the, am I, as a viewer, am I also thinking, yeah, yeah, I probably am, you know? I mean, there are people in this film that I think, yeah, let's let's kill them. I'm curious about their revenge plot at this point that Titus and, and young Lucius come up with. Yeah, what is this whole thing? It's like, okay, so let's send young Lucius to Chiron and Demetrius with a whole bag of weapons. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, and I love their place, like their their hangout place where they've got the video games and all this kind of stuff. But it's like, what is the point of that? I, I'm curious about why they would send these guys a whole bunch of weapons. I know there's a line about... Aaron gets um, it right away. Aaron understands yeah. this. It's, 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 it's Titus's way, and then the verse he sends with it is Titus's way of telling them, I know you did it. He's no sound jest. The old man hath found their guilt and sends them weapons wrapped about with lines that wound beyond their feeling to the quick. But were our witty empress swell afoot, she would applaud Andronica's conceit. But let her rest in her and rest a while. And he's even letting them in on the fact that I know you did it, but he also knows they're too stupid to understand this. So it's kind of his joke, in a way, in telling them that, you know, he's about to get them, and they can't even understand that that's what he's saying. But Aaron I, understands it. I also sort of saw this as, and maybe this is an old, like, you know, chivalry duel kind of thing, where... If you're going to duel with someone or whatever, you send them a good weapon. 
Like you want okay. them to be on equal par with you. So that way it's more fair <laughs> when you finally do off them if uh, that ends up being the case. Well, but then, of course, we know that he just has them bound by servants and, you know, and taken care of. So Titus isn't offering anybody a fight by this point. <laughs> it's right around here, too, that we get another kind of twist in the plot where we have Aaron um, has gotten Tamora pregnant and uh, she has had his baby. And we have this whole scene of him finding out that he's a father and who knows of this child. And, um, because the baby's not dark-skinned. Yeah. So. And I love this way that he uh, is keeping the brothers at bay <laughs> because everybody wants to kill Aaron's whelp. And nobody, he, he is definitely bound and determined, I'm going to keep this kid alive. And some of the things that he says to the baby is, kind of is this internal monologue again that he's saying out loud that I absolutely love. This is really kind of where they, you know, I mentioned the black fly thing just a few scenes earlier. This is where he kind of talks about his race here, which, you know, he, of all the people, he's the most offset because of his skin. He's one of the only, I think there's one black person who's at the end that, that we'll get to like in an audience, but otherwise he's it, man. And his line about coal black is better than, than another hue in that it scorns to bear another hue. And it's just like, you know, he really is very proud of his, his black skin and very proud of this uh, baby that he has now. A joyful issue. A joyless, dismal, black and sorrowful issue. Here is the babe, as loathsome as a toad amongst the fairest breeders of our time. The empress sends it thee, thy stamp, thy seal, and bids thee christen it with thy dagger's point. Zooms, you whore! Is black so base a hue? Sweet blouse, you are beauteous blossom, sure. Villain, what hast thou done? That which thou canst not undo. Thou hast undone our mother. Villain, I have done thy mother. And therein, hellish dog, thou hast undone her! Accursed the offspring of so foul a fiend. It shall not live. It shall not die. Erin, it must. The mother wills it so. What? Must it, nurse? Let no man but I do execution on my flesh and blood. I'll broach the tadpole on this rapist point. Nurse, give it me! My sword shall soon dispatch it. <laughs> Sooner the sword shall plow thy bowels up. <laughs> Stay, murderous villains! Will you kill your brother? Now, by the burning tapers of the sky that shone so brightly when this boy was got, he dies upon my scimitar's sharp point that touches this my firstborn son and heir. What? What, ye sanguine, shallow-hearted boys? Ye white-lined walls, ye alehouse painted sides. Coal black is better than another hue, in that it scorns to bear another hue. For all the water of the ocean could never turn a swan's black legs to white, although she laved them hourly in the flood. Tell the Empress for me that I am of age to keep mine own. Excuse it how she can. 
Wilt thou betray thy noble mistress thus? My mistress is my mistress. This, myself, the vigor and the picture of my youth. This before all the world do I prefer. And it's this great moment where we see something in him that is not just this one-dimension, you know, cackling villain. Is that he, you know, he has... There, there's some, there's some real. There's, it's not just kind of nobility in him, but there's this kind of uh, uh, sense of he's he's going to protect this baby because you know obviously he's his son, but but because it's he, uh, this child deserves to live and and uh, and and there's some, there's this kind of you know. Um, I kind of honor that. Of course, he kills the nurse right away, so she won't tell anyone. But but there's something nice about it. There's something tender. That's the word I'm looking for, tender about that. The other thing that I'm completely blown away by with all of this dialogue about you know skin tone and race and all that stuff is that the fact that all of that was written 400-odd years ago. And it sounds, if you were to put it into modern English, it sounds like something from the Black Pride movement of the late 60s. It's just amazing to hear. Yeah. And really, when you think about it, I mean, Tamora wants the love child killed. She wants Aaron killed. Um, so she's willing to sacrifice her own child. We know that Titus is willing to sacrifice his own children. The only one who is protective of their own child is Aaron, who is the most despicable villain, like maybe in Shakespearean history. So it's this kind of weird, you know, uh, thing that he is the guy who wants to protect his kid. Yes. Well, that's an issue we have to get back at the end of this story, too. So. During this whole time when the baby comes up and all of that, Lucius has been sent off to raise the Goths and to come back and attack Rome to get rid of the Goth Queen and, and Saturninus and all that stuff. So so he's off doing his thing, and, and this is where Aaron, knowing that him and his son are supposed to be killed, uh, is captured by them and has this great dialogue and then also this, um, I guess, soliloquy, as we would call it in Shakespeare, where – he makes a deal with Lucius where, okay, fine, you know, you want to kill me, great, um, but don't kill the boy, and yeah. gets him to swear because Lucius, of course, being a traditional man, an honorable man, will stick to his word. So he gets him to say, yes, okay, fine, I, I won't kill your son. And then Harry Lennox, for me, this film, I mean, we've talked about Jessica Lange, we've talked about Alan Cumming, we've talked about Anthony Hopkins and, and, and the great performances that are in here. What really struck me with this film when I saw it was Harry Lennox as Aaron the Moore, and specifically this whole scene. And it's moved from this understated, you know, an evil, but he's not some weird cackling villain early on. Very understated, very in control, very sure of himself to this moment of, you know, extreme you know, uh, drama where he still has the ability to laugh and he still has the ability to, you know, fight his opponents and come off with these, you know, great lines, too. Oh, one of the, the greatest lines, and you guys said it earlier about, you know, the sadness is, is I don't have time to do a thousand more evil deeds. Yeah. But, but the other one that I love in there, because it's such a, uh, such a beautiful image, uh, the, the horrific image, is where he talks about how he would love to go dig up the bodies of the dead men. Oh God. Yeah. Morning yeah. Because has, that's the thing that I have done, you know, yeah. I've, you know, dug up dead bodies and put them at their friends' doorways. <laughs> Just when they were about done with their mourning. Exactly. Oh man. Indeed. I was their tutor to instruct them. 
Ah, that cutting spirit had they from their mother. That bloody mind, I think they learned of me. Ah, let my deeds be witness of my work. I trained my brother into that guileful hole where the dead corpse of Bassianus lay. I wrote the letter that thy father found and hid the bag of gold beneath the tree. I played the cheetah for thy father's hand, and when I had it, drew myself apart and almost broke my heart with extreme laughter. And when I told the empress of this sport, she swooned almost at my pleasing tale, and for my tidings gave me twenty kisses. What? Canst thou say all this and never blush? Aye. Like a black dog, as the saying is. Art thou not sorry for these heinous deeds? Aye. But I had not done a thousand more. Even now, I curse the day. And yet I think few come within the compass of my curse, wherein I did not some notorious ill as kill a man, or else devise his death. Rather shamed or plot the way to do it, accuse some innocent and forswear myself, make poor men's cattle break their necks, set fire on barns and haystacks in the night, and bid the owners quench them with their tears. Oft have I digged up dead men from their graves, and set them upright at their dear friends' doors, even when their sorrows almost was forgot. And on their skins, as on the barks of trees, have with my knife carved in Roman letters, let not my sorrow die, though I am dead. I have done a thousand dreadful things as willingly as one would kill a fly. And nothing grieves me heartily indeed. But then I cannot do ten thousand more. Bring down the devil! <laughs> he must not die so sweet a death as hanging presently. Oh, so good. Yeah, Harry, he, he owns this. He totally does. So it's after this scene that we have the visitation by... Tamara and the goth kids who are all dressed up and as you were saying and he then takes the boys and we don't quite know exactly what's going on because the reveals happen in time and it's very masterfully done how the reveals are done but they're hanging upside down he's talking to them and then he slits their throats and then he's having a fabulous dinner party where he's well, invited Lavinia, and, he, and Lavinia catches the blood and she's She's fully into this bloody revenge herself now. Any innocence she may have had early in the film is gone now. She wants to see these guys bleed to death and and, and die. As well as Aaron's revenge or plot came about earlier with the gold and the letter that it gives to Tamora and all this stuff to set up Titus, this is where things really kind of come around for him because he's got the uh, the scrolls that he has uh, shot into the air that all fall into the palace and he's so he's got um, Saturninus completely freaked out. He's got the Chiron and Demetrius there slitting their throats and you know what better time to uh, get 
Saturninus and Tamora over to his his place than now when Saturninus is really upset and thinks that you know things are gonna are going to go south for him with his rule and everything. Let's have a dinner party. Sure. <laughs> but Let's all settle it over. A nice it's a meeting. It's a meeting between the Goths and you know and Rome and you know that there's perhaps going to be some kind of peace brokered here at this dinner party. But Titus has other plans in mind. It's asked where are Demetrius and Chiron? Hmm. Okay. Well, they're they're on <laughs> they're on their oh, way. Yeah. First, yeah, yeah, and then he's, he's but, he, but he talks to Saturninus and he says. Hypothetical, you know, you know, in classical tradition, there was a certain woman who was raped, and what, what what should happen to that woman after you know she's been raped and 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 had that dishonor put upon her family and Saturninus, of course, as well. She should be killed. My lord, the emperor, hmm? resolve me this: was it well done of rash Virginius to slay his daughter with his own right hand? Because she was enforced, stained, and deflowered? It was, Andronicus. Your reason, mighty lord. Because the girl should not survive her shame, and by her presence still renew his sorrows. A reason mighty, strong, and effectual. A pattern precedent and lively warrant for me most wretched to perform the like. Die, die, Lavinia, and thy shame with thee. What hast thou done? <coughs> Unnatural and unkind! Killed her, for whom my tears have made me blind. And so then, of course, Titus says, you're right, and he kills his daughter, Lavinia, in, at the dinner party. Um, and uh, uh, and then things kind of steamroll from there. And Saturninus says, Shit, if this is going to be that kind of party, I'm going to stick my dick in the mashed potatoes. <laughs> well, well, someone's dick isn't in the mashed potatoes, more like the meat pies they're serving. <laughs> yeah. So, and this is the moment where I'm just uncontrollably laughing. That is shot because, so well, isn't it? Well, and having Anthony Hopkins as the mad chef, you know, serving up human beings to other human beings, it's like, okay, you know, this yeah. casting is perfect. Yeah, it's, it's happened. And this is a moment, this is actually a moment from the play where you can say that Shakespeare himself was aware of the black kind of humor the macabre humor going on here because, or at least maybe not Shakespeare himself, but, but the company and the people at the time, because the stage direction in the first folio reads, enter Titus like a cook. That on the Shakespearean stage, Titus comes out in some kind of outfit. Now it's in, in this film, it's, you know, with the big chef hat and the, and the white outfit. But he came out dressed like, hey, everyone, I'm the cook. And guess what I cook? So there is a moment of, I mean, that is clearly a moment of black humor that comes right from the play. And then Anthony Hopkins plays to the extreme. It's so funny. I want to say in in Elizabethan um, companies they would have um, kind of like a, a, a like a one piece thing uh, that they would wear and it would say uh, "kiss the cook" on a, across it. 
That's how apron. they would kind of just de- yes, just an apron. apron. Yeah. That's what it yeah. was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th- this whole scene works for me on two levels. One, as you said, Mike, the casting of Anthony Hopkins is such a little echo back to Hannibal Lecter. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. And the other one is that they're meat pies, which brings to forth the idea of Sweeney Todd and the dark humor of Sweeney Todd for me in this scene. What is that? It's priest. Have a little priest. Is it really good? Sir, it's too good, at least. Then again, they don't come, it seems, of the flesh. So it's pretty fresh. Awful lot of fat. Only where it's sat. Haven't you got poet or something like that? No, you see, the trouble with poet is how do you know it's deceased? priest yeah try the priest and the little shots of just anthony hopkins you know touching the napkin to his lips mm, isn't it good as they're eating so there's just all these little moments that are funny until he decides to stab his daughter to death or he breaks her neck he he, he, he he kind of twists her neck and the way that only people only in films can be killed apparently just twisting their neck probably the only humane kill in the entire film you know, the only time that we haven't, you know, gotten a gallon of blood out of somebody when they've been yeah. killed. And also the feeling that you're putting someone out of their misery. Right. Yeah. Though, again, this goes all the way back to the beginning with this whole thing of Titus having to follow the rules. And him question this, though, is him questioning the rules because he has let her live. And I know that I sound horrible saying this, but he has let her live through all of this stuff. And then has he asks Saturninus, you know, what is the tradition? You know, really kind of bringing it out and showing just how barbaric it is by doing it at this dinner party. So it's almost like he has finally, even though he follows the tradition, he's finally kind of come to his senses a little bit for being a, a mad general. Um, in that he knows that it's a horrible thing to do, but he does it in this way to just kind of show how terrible it is and to set this whole stage of one atrocity after another after another because things don't end with the meat pies, folks. Then it just becomes freaking crazy after that. And Tamor, the, the way Tamor has Lavinia die is interesting because she changed from the stage production. And the stage production... Lavinia kind of grabs, I forget, she grabs something sharp, I don't know if it's a sword or a fork or something, and she kind of, she kind of impales herself with Titus holding onto it, and she's the one that impales herself onto it as if, as if it is a suicide, um, and that, that he's assisting. And in this, and in the film though, instead of doing that, she kind of snuggles into him. She leans into him in a very loving way. But still, I think with the idea that she knows he's about to snap her neck. And she participates in it without being the one that kind of, you know, does it. And then he has to crack her neck. In both cases, you get the, the sense that she wants to die, um, but she lets Titus do it in the film, like fully. He's the one that has to commit this awful thing to, you know, complete this cycle. And completing that cy- that cycle at the dinner table is 
Lucius killing Saturninus and all kinds of uh, lovely yeah. bloody Saturninus wars. says, why did you do that? Oh, it's because she was raped, and who did it? That was Chiron and Demetrius. And then, you know, where are Chiron and Demetrius? Bring them here to me. And then Anthony Hopkins, you know, gets to do the great gleeful, you know, they're in the pie! Guess who was in the burger, as Barf would say, and you can't do that on television. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so we've got Titus killing Tamora. He's got and, her, yeah. and then Saturninus killed Titus, and then Lucius kills Saturninus. And a wonderfully done, isn't it, when he kills uh, Saturninus? By, oh, uh, yeah. Using you know, the, the bullet time from the Matrix and everything? I was well, just like, ooh. That he shoves the spoon down his throat. He takes a oh, spoon yeah. and jams it all the way into his throat, and then he kicks him over and, and shoots him in slow motion with a long, cool thing of spit coming out of his mouth, too. Yeah. So. And then the play ends. Just <laughs> as quickly as that. It's like, okay, story's over. Well, we have an ending. We do have an ending. Which is, is to kind of you know use that framing device and and have young Lucius again kind of, you know, become almost kind of come out of the film, although he kind of doesn't quite do that. Um but um uh the they, they bring they bring Aaron back and they bury him in the end. Um uh and actually in, in the play he's done. In the play, you know, they just say we're gonna do that to him. Um but of course in in the film they can bring him out again and they bury him in the under the uh, under the ground up to his neck and no one's allowed to feed him. And this is Lucius now is kind of taken over and, and now they're going to make Lucius Emperor, uh, Titus's son, and, and he's the guy that gets to meet out the justice, which I think should be a big question to anyone watching this film, is that why would anybody trust an Andronicus, an Andronicae with justice uh, at this point? Um, but when they bury Aaron and, uh, and everyone else is dead, and they bring out the baby, Aaron's baby, a little cage. And this is a departure from the stage production, because in Tamor's stage production, at the end of the film, at the end of the, of the show, um, they bring out a little coffin that's, you know, like a baby-sized coffin with the idea that Aaron's baby was not saved, that Lucius said he would save the baby, but he has instead decided to kill it, and they bring out the baby in a coffin. And, um, but in the film... She changes that, and I've I've read that it was Angus McFadden who played Lucius, um, who had actually uh, convinced her to change it. That he that he convinced her that Lucius would not go back on his word. That he is that kind of honorable man. That if he gave that word, he would make sure the baby lived. And so she's decided to go with that. But she takes it a step further, in that it's young Lucius, you know, our stand-in, who opens the cage and takes the baby out. And then, of course, walks off into the rising sun on the horizon. And if there is ever a movie that had such a, that I did not expect to have this kind of hopeful, beautiful last shot that, you know, that with, with, with him walking with the baby and the music swelling and the sun rising, that's not the ending that is supposed to go on with our movie. And yet, it completely works for me. It's it's the exact. That's the journey that I think young Lucius was on, and where that that there, in spite of all this horror and violence that we've seen, that you know there there are still there's still some hope for us in the future. 
or maybe you guys thought that ending sucked. <laughs> it was an interesting ending. It reminded me a little bit of being there. I don't know. Just kind of walks away. Oh, yeah. He just yeah. kind of walks off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I don't, I don't think so. I, I mean, I, I think there was definitely a sense here of, you know, especially with um, that, I mean, uh, just the, the symbolism of it, of him carrying this baby towards the horizon with a, with a rising sun, that this is a clear sign of hope, not the kind of, you know, dumb existentialist luck, you know, kind of thing going on and being there. This is making a statement of there is I mean, hope's the word I keep coming up with. That's what it says to me at that last shot of the film. So since the baby is biracial, is it Obama? <laughs> I'm sure you could get into all kinds of trouble looking at this and being like, Oh, well now it's the white man's burden. Now it's young Lucius taking on this you know, this black baby and blah 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 but hopefully we can kind of avoid all that stuff there was a one essay that i read that was just really going into that and i was just like yeah i don't necessarily see that but no uh, okay no i don't see that i mean to to me the the idea of bookends is interesting because as we said the opening of the film is the kid at the table so we have another dinner table and then we have the guy who came in and grabbed him and carried him off to the Coliseum. And at the end, he grabs the kid and he carries him out of the Coliseum. So mm-hmm. the idea that maybe through observation, through taking part in some way, maybe the kid's wiser now. Maybe he's learned where his grandfather, his father, and the elders had not learned. And they were still stuck in their old ways and their old tradition. And maybe we get the idea that the young boy can move forward and these things won't happen again. Yeah, because he started to go in that direction of, of, of being into the kind of, you know, let's go get revenge, you know, in the film when, when he has a couple lines about that. But he has been saved from that. And, you know, um, and that can now save the baby and saying, instead of saying, no, just kill the baby too because it's the offspring of Aaron and tomorrow. We're going to take a break and play an interview with the director, Julie Taymor. After these messages. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to the Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies, every Tuesday. If you listen to Proudly Resents, the cult movie podcast, you would know how to properly crush a head. But let's say you want to crush a head like Toxic Avenger or the famous full head crushing scene. You take a cantaloupe, carve out the inside, then you load what we call loading the cantaloupe. We used to put in hamburger mixed with cranberry sauce, but now because I'm a vegetarian, it's only cranberry and spaghetti and things that are not animal Then you put a wig on the cantaloupe and paint a little happy face. Bingo. That was Lloyd Kaufman from Troma Films. To hear more interviews and reviews, go to ProudlyResents.com or find Proudly Resents on iTunes and Stitcher. Hey, Iris, you know what we should do? We should try to get Fred Olin Ray on the show. Why would he want to come on our show? Hi, this is Fred Olin Ray, and you're listening to the Badasses, Boobs, and Body Count podcast. Okay, what about Olaf Ittenbach, Germany's Splatter King? 
Ah, uh, that'd be great, but I doubt he speaks any English. I'm Olaf Hittenbach, and you're listening to the Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts podcast. What about the director of Blood Sucking Freaks, Joel M. Reed? Isn't he dead? This is Joel M. Reed, and you're listening to Badass Boobs and Body Counts podcast. No, Iris, he's not. Hello, I'm Mike, host to the Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts podcast. And I'm Iris, co-host of the Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts podcast. Every week in High Iris discuss lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. Mike and I discuss films like The Black Godfather, The Beast That Killed Women, and Biozombie to name just a few. And every now and then we get to speak with the people behind all the films we love to talk about. Okay, how about this, Mike? Let's get Andy Sidaris on the show and talk girls, guns, and G-strings. Um, yeah, Iris, he's actually really dead, but we did manage to talk to his wife, Arlene, way back in episode 20. Well, I suppose that's the next best thing. Yeah, I suppose so. So the Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts podcast can be found on iTunes, on Stitcher's Smart Radio, and on SoundCloud. Just search for the BB&BC podcast to start listening today. You can also visit the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Okay, Iris, did you keep track of the boob and body counts on the film we're discussing next week? Uh, no, I thought you were doing that this week. No, I'm no, I no, uh-uh. no. I've seen this. Uh, boy, no, it we're was gonna have you. To, it was you. Uh, look, from now on, let's both do that. Okay, that sounds good. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about outside the cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take uh-huh. us to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity? I'm the guy that fucking burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, <laughs> horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. <laughs> People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one That is one star too many. <laughs> Let me tell you. The worst fucking piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Ah. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. Remember when it was for you that um, you became interested in, in theater and you know wanting to be a director and, and to do that work to be a theater director? Yeah, and and when you got interested in you know the mm-hmm. performing arts in general, and then obviously into film. Uh, I was a child. I was always performing, always uh, whether it was in the backyard playing dress up with my sister and friends in the garage and making theater. I, I I did it since I was a child. And then when I was really young, I, I went to, I grew up outside of Boston and was a part of Boston Children's Theater and acted in plays that were professional. Um, of course, we were exploited. We didn't make the money, but there were, you know, paid performances. And so I acted from a really young age. And then in high school, I started doing experimental theater work. This was in the 60s. 
and we did uh, plays that were based on serious political subjects like the slaughter of the Native Americans or the uh, you know absconding with the land or whatever, however you want to put it. And Riot was another one that had to do with racial issues. So at age 15, I was already involved in a kind of um, theater where the actors were not just the players, but we were the creators as well. And then it goes on and on and on. I mean, years and years of studying mime in Paris, traveling around the world, being in Asia. But I started seriously young. When you first were able to, you know, progress this and and do those early productions, you know, obviously being an actor and then working to be a director, you cross paths. Everyone who's an actor crosses paths with Shakespeare. Do you remember the the first time um, that you heard it and when it connected with you? What was it? What play and what was it that? Connected well, a couple with you? of things. When when I was um, about seven or eight, my family did. Uh, I think it was, let me see. I was eight. Well, we went across country because we went to the 1960s convention in Los Angeles for Kennedy. My mother was a delegate. And on the way, we stopped in Stratford in Canada. We did one of these long road trips. And I remember seeing a Midsummer Night's Dream. And it made a huge impression on me. And then it was either that year or the year, I think it was the year after that, in a summer camp, I actually played Hermia in a Midsummer Night's Dream. So that play was the earliest experience I had with Shakespeare, and that's what I'm doing right now, oddly enough. I mean, we just got accepted into the Toronto Film Festival announced yesterday, and so we'll be showing our film for the first time internationally on the 8th of September. And has that always been a production for you that you've wanted to put on, something you've wanted to do? Never, no. I've actually uh, hidden and run away from this production because... The kind of work that I do, which people see as heavily visual and fantastical and all, when people tell you that here's a perfect play for you to do, you just go the other way. So for years, I, I, I really avoided it. And, and frankly, since my first experience with it, I've never seen a good production except for when I was in college at Oberlin. We drove 15 hours to see that infamous Peter, Peter Brook production. In my memory, it was it was a very exciting and groundbreaking theatrical theatrical experience. But since then, I've never seen a production that I've liked and have really shied away from it. And so, when the producer of Theater for a New Audience, which is a company that I've worked with for thirty years, came to me and said, "We are finally." getting to build. We're going to build our own theater. We're not going to be nomads anymore, moving from one building to another. Uh, we're getting a, a, a theater built in Brooklyn, and we'd like you to do the inaugural production. What would you like to do? And I did last, two summers ago, I did uh, readings of about five Shakespeare plays and also Marlowe's Tamburlaine. And I, I just felt that A Midsummer was the play to inaugurate a new theater because it is it was created as a play for a wedding, for a celebration, and really the building of a new theater is a wedding between the theater, the artists, and the audience. And it, it has opened many theaters, the Midsummer Night's Dream. It actually opened the um, New Amsterdam Theater, which is where I did The Lion King originally. And I had gone to Disney this is 20 years ago, and said to them, look, I know you're taking over the New Amsterdam. I would really like to open the theater with A Midsummer Night's Dream because it was inaugurated with that play in the 20s. 
and again years later. And they said, no, no, we don't want to do, we don't want to do a Midsummer Night's Dream, but how about The Lion King? So I have this long history with Midsummer in a very awkward, odd way. What is it that gets hung up? Because you said you haven't seen a good production of it and it's something you haven't wanted well, to do. Well, I think it becomes this, this ridiculous uh, thing where the fairies, you know, traditionally, and even in my production, they're played by children, with, but not in my production, with wings, and it becomes a very cutesy, surrealistic, but very uh, lightweight comedy. And actually, Shakespeare, who's way beyond anything that's too light, has uh, uh, has created a play that starts as a tragedy and is a comedy, but is a comedy in the darkest, most poetic way possible. And I think what I've seen have been these ridiculous, mm, silly jaunts into love affairs and uh, in, in forests, in magical forests with with a with a donkey and it's just too it's it's not my cup of tea my cup of tea is Titus Andronicus and Macbeth and many of the darker Shakespeare's but now that I've done Midsummer I adore it because once you delve into any Shakespeare you see the multi layers that that this genius has written and nothing is as light as it seems it's all very interesting uh, how he dissects love in all of its um, aspects. So as for the film of Midsummer, how was this put together and uh, and created for you? What did you? Uh, it, it's my understanding. It's a is it a, a filming of the stage version as opposed to a? It is, but but what we we had this um, stage version that played sold out audiences uh, last fall through the winter, and it was in a in a pretty much wraparound theater. Well, we had three sides wraparound and then. It was it was still very very physical, very visual with extraordinary actors in it, and a producer who had wanted to do some of my other film work, who was interested in some other scripts, came from London, from Ealing Studio, and saw the production. And I said, "Oh my God, we only have two weeks left. I wish I could film it." And he said, "All right, let's do it." So in a couple of weeks, we put it all together. I had Rodrigo Prieto, who had shot Frida for me, wonderful cinematographer who had does a lot of Martin Scorsese films and Argo and Brokeback Mountain, did Frida. Um, he came, he'd never done this before, with three other cameramen, and we, we had four performances that we were able to shoot live, and four days during that time of additional pickups where we went on stage with handheld and Steadicam and live audiences, always live audiences. And with those 70 hours of material we were we spent a number of months in post to create what is really a, a hybrid it's a cinematic theatrical experience it's not just like live from the national or live from the met it's not just the cameras out there in a proscenium catching as catch can it's really it really is a movie uh it really has that feel but it is also theatrical and a performance i'm looking forward to seeing it because i've seen all of the work so far that you've done with Shakespeare, and it's very exciting uh, when I hear that you're returning to it, especially after The Tempest. Did you see the, tra the trailer's been online for a day. If you go to the Toronto International Film Festival, they've put the trailer up. So you can go to YouTube now and see a, a trailer for Midsummer. Excellent. Well, we will definitely share that, and I'm looking forward to seeing it. I actually went uh, just before I talked to you, and I tried to find it. I couldn't find it yet, but now that I know that it's with Toronto, I'll definitely be able to mm -hmm. find it. 
So talking about Titus and wanted to talk to you about sort of the development from the stage play and then into the film, we talked to Harry Lennox for the show as well, and he sort of talked a little bit about uh, the, the development of the play. When did you get the idea that this was the play you wanted to do? Because as I have come to understand, it's not one that's often done uh, that often. Right. Um, the, the producer of Theater for New Audience came to me and said, read this. I think you should do it. And I read the play and was shocked. I couldn't believe it had been written when it was written. It felt so contemporary. It was so absurdist and dark and deep and deeply frightening and shocking. And I said, okay, I'll do this. This was, uh, God, I don't remember now when I did Harry remember, like 1996 maybe? Uh, We did this in a little church off-Broadway, St. Clement's Church, and Harry was the only actor who was in the original theater production who we brought into the film as well to play Aaron, one of the most extraordinary roles ever created by Shakespeare, and the only other black role, but there is Othello and Aaron, and Aaron is by far more interesting than Othello. He's he's sort of the uh, model for Richard III and all the other extraordinary, nasty, dark, vengeful characters that Shakespeare's written. Um, I I took it on, and I was, as as you always are with Shakespeare, you have to really get into it and work it till you really know what it is. You can't just get it from reading a script. You have to be in there with actors. And I fell in love with the play. I think it's one of the most underrated, maligned uh, plays in the canon. And personally, I like it far better than Hamlet and a number of the other more uh, heralded plays of Shakespeare. Because I think it's more real. I don't think it's over the top. I think it's absolutely what what is going on now, forever. Back in 1996, 1998, when I was going to make it into a movie in 98, right after I'd done The Lion King, we had Littleton in Colorado. We had Menendez Brothers. We had there were so many shocking uh, moments of violence in our in our culture that wasn't just the inner city, uh, you know, drug war kind of violence. It was people that you you couldn't believe the middle classes or the uh, high school students who were who were who were involved in violent acts that that took our country by storm they just shocked people how could this be how could families how could children kill parents you know what and shakespeare wrote about it during his day perhaps because he was competing with other revenge plays of the time and because he was competing with uh, bear baiting and public executions down the street. The, the theater artists had to compete with the real shit, you know, with the real thing. So he went for it. But, but as opposed to just being Grand Guignol, and a lot of people just take it as this kind of comedic, over-the-top, bloody, vengeful thing, if you really take it seriously, it is a pearl in an oyster. It is an absolute diamond in the rough. And it really explores violence in every single one of its aspects. And that, that was something that shocked me when I read it. And as I did it in the theater and then again did it in the film, I couldn't believe how, what an exegesis, what an extraordinary dissertation on violence from the going, starting from war to religious violence to lust, uh, to, um, rape, revenge, uh, every single kind of violence, you can, blood to blood, families to families that you could possibly think of, this play explores it. 
And that is why when I saw the film, when it first came out in the theater, I was just completely taken by it because to me, it talks about all of those elements. And then you have like you were, you know, we talked about Aaron and, and what Harry Lennox does in the film and obviously did in the stage show for you. Just all these all this talk of, of race and, you know, is is black such a basic hue and all of this stuff. It's, that's 400 years ago. and It's the best writing on that kind of racism I've ever read. When he says, what will you kill thy brother? Black is better than another hue and that it scorns to bear another hue. All the water in the world will never wash a black slave's, what is it, black slave's legs to white, though he lave them hourly in the flood. You know, black swan's legs, black swan's legs to white. And, you know, this is not a guy... Well, this is the thing. Shakespeare writes a play, Taming of the Shrew, and it's not really misogynist. It's not. It's actually about monogamy. I've directed that for theater for new audience as well. And, and he, you know, his, his discovery of race or, or anti-female, you know, misogyny... The, the guy was an utter, complete humanist. And though he was cynical, he loved human beings. He balances his cynicism with absolute devotion to what it is to dream, to be human, to be in love. So, you know, you're getting, you're not just getting the nihilism. Because what is so amazing about Aaron, the character of Aaron and Titus, is that he is so contemporary because he's a nihilist. You know, he, he, that's another kind of violence, which is, oh, why not? Why not bake people into pies? Why not do this, you know, cutter from limb to limb? It, what's the difference? And yet at the end, Aaron is has a child and will die would is willing to die for the for the life of his child and titus it's this incredible uh changing of their of the guard here titus who starts as a noble good general the kind we would want like at at that time it was colin powell let's have him be our president and then by the end when he's gone through all of this incredible trauma over the over his children He's like Aaron. He's, he's an artist with, with violence. He makes these boys who have raped his daughter into pies for their mother to devour, to eat. And it, it's just an incredible thing. And I think that's what got me most or what gets me about Shakespeare is that you don't know who the protagonist is. You don't know who to root for. You start out in Titus rooting for Tamara because you see her sons, her firstborn son is going to be sacrificed in a religious ritual by Titus that he, that Titus says has to be done for his own dead sons to go freely into uh, the land of the dead, that that's what's required by his religion. And Tamara says, oh, cruel, irreligious piety. I think those three words are the most extraordinary words that came 400 years ago and speak profoundly right now with what's going on not only in the Gaza Strip or the Middle East, but basically everywhere where, where people justify their violence with those words, with, with, with those concepts, that it's religious, that in the name of Allah, in the name of God, in the name of Christianity, in the name of that we believe, whether it's the Crusades or, what's, or the Intifada or the whatever it might be, not the Intifada, the... Um, What's it called? The Muslim, the, the jihad, jihad. You know, it doesn't matter. It's all the same. It's cruel, irreligious piety. 
And that was the thing that really struck me on watching it again recently um, for the show was that really I saw Titus as someone stuck in tradition, that he can't think past tradition. And all of these things come out of the fact that he will not move past tradition in terms of killing of his son, putting Saturninus in when he knows that he's not the best guy for the job. Mm -hmm. Just living with the idea that this is, hey, this is the way we do it. So um, deal with it. (laughs) It just uh, No, it's absolutely right. And, And he gets punished for it. And he learns, and and he goes mad. Uh, although Anthony Hopkins, I don't think, thinks he really went mad. <laughs> I think he thinks that he used his madness to to be able to get his revenge on his enemies. His, you know, he used it. But I think it's hard to say what's madness and what isn't madness in in, in our day and age. And speaking of Anthony Hopkins, I just wanted to ask in terms of the the casting of the film and the production of the film. How was the the cast put together? Did you seek people out, or did they know that this was being done and they came to you? No. Originally, Al Pacino was going to play Titus, and he had seen the play at St. Clement's Church and had liked it and asked me if I would uh, direct him in another play. And I said, well, I'm planning to do a film of Titus, Andronicus of Titus. Would you be interested? And he said, well, let's do a reading. So we did a reading in New York and a reading in L.A., and I had a different concept about where I was going to shoot it. At that time, it was going to be in Vegas, uh, and I was going to use the uh, forum there. And, you know, it was, it was a similar concept, but it was in Vegas, you know, where the child, the young Lucius, would have been living in a on the periphery of the Vegas in a, in a kind of mobile home. And <laughs> I mean, it worked very well, but Pacino just wouldn't commit. And at that time, I had Lion King had opened, and Al- and uh, Anthony Hopkins, I, w- I, I kind of wanted to stay away from the English Shakespeare, but Hopkins had seen it, and I knew that Hopkins was really avoiding doing Shakespeare. He's Welsh and not English at all, and had a very big aversion to doing Shakespeare on stage at the time, uh, and didn't like the, quote, RSC talking head style of Shakespeare. But I went down to Florida, and I met him, and within three hours, he said, let's do it. And I said, oh, my God, I couldn't believe it. I said, you don't have to give me an answer right away. You can call me later. He said, no, I want to do it. And this is my first feature film. So it was was an extraordinary, for me, I felt an extraordinary coup to have an actor on that level willing to to go there with me, uh, someone who had never directed a film before, well, at least not a feature. And he said, you're going to have to help me so that I don't do that kind of acting. What he meant was sort of overacting live theater. And I said, well, you're going to have to help me because this is my first feature. And so we went in there together um, knowing that we were both going to have to have to do something we've never done before. And uh, it was it was amazing doing it with Hopkins. Really, really, I was very lucky because Pacino was great in the reading, but I think that, that Hopkins was ready and willing to go to another place with the part. The one and thing- Jessica Lang, I sought her out as well. She had never done Shakespeare, and she that year or around that time, she came out with Blue Sky and Rob Roy, and I thought, oh, my God, this woman is just as beautiful, sexy, powerful, majestic, as ever, and I and I I know that she has to give birth to a child in in the story, but I I love that she was an older woman, you know, older in her late forties or early fifties. I don't know exactly, but that's rare in Shakespeare. Those parts are rare for women. 
So I loved being able to work with her. And she was she was terrified because she'd never done Shakespeare. But we had three weeks, two and a half weeks of rehearsal in Chinichita, which brought all these actors together, some who were real Shakespeare veterans like Angus McFadgen and Alan Cummings and, and obviously Anthony Hopkins and Colm Fiore. But then there were the young actors like Jonathan Rhys Myers, who had never done Shakespeare and had never done live theater, let alone Shakespeare, and Laura Frazier. So uh, there was a there was a balance of experience and inexperience, but all talented, all film actors, all ready and able to do this. So we needed that two and a half weeks to find the common the common denominator, the way that they could all work together. And Cicely Berry from the RSC, a really wonderful Shakespeare coach, uh, speech coach, helped the ones who had never done it really feel comfortable doing it. There's a great behind-the-scenes hour-long documentary that's on the DVD. I think it's online now, too, that you can, you can see this, this process. One of the things I wanted to ask you on this was, um, you know, given the ending and the cannibalism, was there ever any concern for you that people would think, oh, it's campy, you know, Hannibal Lecter in the end kind of thing? Well, I think he did that one moment, Hopkins, where he does that with the tongue. And I didn't, you know, it didn't bother me because I'm not, it's not like I became obsessed with the Hannibal Lecter film, but... I think that's Hopkins, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. It's his little signature moment, but I don't think it's campy. I think it's, I think it's dark and terrifying. And I think it's appropriate to what Shakespeare wrote. In terms of the production design, I was really just, when I saw it in the theater and experienced it, it was just quite amazing. Just how, um, it, it's everywhere and nowhere. It's yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And I really loved those ideas. And what was it for you when you sat down to figure out how you were going to put this together? Because I know some of the stuff translated from the stage to the film. Uh, when you sat down to design it, what were you thinking with it in that way? Well, obviously, in Shakespeare's plays, there is no no place. It's done on a bare stage, the original plays. And so a lot of it is left to the imagination of the audience, which is fantastic. And when I had done it in the theater originally, we had a very low budget, and a wonderful designer had created these um, plastic uh, uh, kind of columns, these flats that could move across the stage that had black and white photo blow-up of Roman columns on them. And it was this kind of incredible balance between the cheesy plastic of today and the beauty of the actual imagery of Roman columns. And that concept stuck. It, because when you go to Rome, finally when I met Dante Ferretti, and I said, I want to do this, and, he, and I talked about Vegas, he said, well, have you seen the Roman Colosseum? Because the idea of, of the Colosseum is a very powerful one. The Co- Roman Colosseum is, is the first theater of violence. It's where violence has been codified. It's understood as an entertainment form. And I thought that the bookends of the movie should be the Colosseum. And he said, well, come and see Mussolini's Colosseum, which is a square Colosseum in a place called Aeor in Rome. So I did, a, I did a location scout with Dante. He took me to these extraordinary ruins and places. 
And I, I just gave up immediately. Vegas was out the window because this was far more exciting. When you go and even stay, stand outside the Roman Colosseum, you're looking at, at all the worlds from that era up to the present at one time. You see people selling, you know, people who are dressed up as Roman soldiers outside the Colosseum selling G.I. Joes that are on the ground, these little toys. And then you'll see the stratification of life. And it's not like, at that year, Gladiator came out as well. And, of course, they had to recreate and use visual effects to make it as if that was the period. Whereas Rome now represents ancient Rome, the 20s, the 30s, the present, and the future. Kind of left out the Renaissance. But, and I felt that the design, as I spoke to Milena Cononero, the costume designer, and Dante Ferretti, the genius uh, production designer, I said, we're going to use design, the costume design will be according to the character. So, as you said earlier, Titus is a rigid, old-fashioned guy. So his costume begins in a very classic Roman general's costume. He is wearing the armor, the headdress, all of it, and it's this dark metal steel. And as he moves through the play and the play transforms him, he goes from black to silver to gray to, to a light white to a bright white in his chef uniform at the end. And he goes from hard metal to, at one point, he's wearing this kind of contemporary gray lumpy sweater as his, as his own worldview and who he is has been torn apart. And he's been stripped down to just the man. So costumes are emblematic of what's going on to the character's personality. It's metaphorical. Uh, that would be the same with every character. And Milena, the designer, and I decided because we were blending periods that we had to be very limited on our palette. So there's nothing in the design beyond black, white, gray, blue, and red and all kinds of metallics. And the red, white, and blue theme came from the idea that if you look at white skin and you look under it at the, at the veins, it's kind of the, the red, blue, and white comes from the veins underneath thin skin. So that's the concept for the costumes. Uh, and with Dante, you know, again, you in, the, in, the, in a live theater production, it's all done in a bare stage and elements move. But here, in this particular screenplay, I decided to, I had to decide where would the pre-rape happen? Where would the post-rape be? So, for instance, Lavinia, you don't see the rape. And a lot of the violence is off stage, and very specific violence is on stage. And I, and I followed that in the film as well. Some of it's off camera, and some of it is on. And in one case, for instance, the rape of Lavinia, you don't see her raped. You see her tortured, brought away, but then you see the post-rape. And what we decided was to put it in a swamp of burnt out, like a burnt out forest with black charred stumps. And this is completely inspired by the language of Shakespeare, who describes uh, Lavinia, when the Uncle Marcus sees her, he says, What's, what is this, my niece? Who has lopped and hewed and made thy body bare of her two branches? Now, this language of, of, of lopped and hewed body and trunks and stumps, that inspired the, the imagery of, of, a, of, a, of this uh, swampy forest burnt out. And we put Lavinia on top of a stump in the film. 
And it, it's incredibly powerful because that's what a, a swampy, burnt-out forest looks like. It looks like a ravaged woman. It's emblematic. It's metaphorical. So I could go through the whole play and describe to you, scene by scene, why we chose the locations or created the locations that we did that have more to do with the inner landscape of, of, of the action and the relationships between the characters than they have to do with, okay, now we're in a Senate or now we're in this room or that room. And it is it is so rich in that way in terms of its design. And the other thing that design-wise that's rich, and I, I really noticed it this time when I rewatched it, is the sound design. And especially uh, it, it becomes evident in the beginning and in the end. And specifically where the, 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 the boy, the young Lucius is at the table and he's playing and there's the sounds in the background and all of that uh-huh. stuff. And... You know, I, I know sound is very important for the stage, but as you were saying, this was your first feature. So, was that something you had to learn, or was it a carryover? In well, that way? no. I mean, I'm, I'm my partner is Elliot Goldenthal, the composer, and I think it's my favorite score of his, Titus. And Blake Lee did the sound, and it's genius. He's a he's a sound designer and composer, so the two of them really work together. You know, the the opening of the boy in that contemporary, as I said, it could be Brooklyn or Sarajevo at the time. Uh, kitchen, 19, 1960s kitchen, with the um, those kinds of tables, the dinette tables and all. Uh, that sound of what's coming across TV and commercials is so, it's so, it, it, it's an incredible, that's not in the Shakespeare play. That That is the bookends that I added to frame this piece from the child's point of view. But it sets up that idea that you're saying that sound is going to be very, very informative and powerful. And uh, and the sound of the bomb that explodes that kitchen is, is terrifying. I wanted to ask about the ending. And do you find that your ending is hopeful or not? Probably, and probably many people object to it because of that. The ending of many Shakespeare plays, including The Tempest, which I had a problem with because I did my own ending on that as well, you know, I hate, I don't mean to sound presumptuous, but many of, of these Elizabethan plays and Shakespeare's included in this, they round everything up in a way that's acceptable for the Elizabethan sensibility and political framework. And I think that when Lucius, uh, the Angus Mathagen part, um, winds everything up and everybody's punished and this and that, and he puts Aaron in that, that pit, uh, it's not totally satisfying. It's not for our contemporary audience. And because I was telling this from this child's point of view, and for me it was very important to say, look, we are teaching our children these lessons, and therefore the cycle of violence and vengeance will continue. And if this child goes through this journey and watches what his parents do, and even joins in, like in the fly scene, and later with the letters that he brings to the boys in the in the um, kind of torture chamber. At the very end, he is the one who says, if we keep that child, Aaron's child, in that cage, because I have to make a decision, how is the child? It doesn't tell you in Shakespeare's script. You know, you know that that child who is reared in a cage is going to rise up and kill his enemy. There's no doubt about it. It's no doubt about it. So our child does one last act where he takes that child who represents all children, and we go from babies crying to the sounds of, of ravens and birds, or it goes, you know, actually from one child to, 
to the birds, many, many, many babies crying. He's representative of all of those children. And our young boy, Lucius, takes this child and walks out of the Colosseum. And it goes from night, from darkness, to a sliver of sun on the horizon and into an environment that looks like it's all desert. And maybe there is a mirage there in the distance of a sliver of water. And it, it could be called sentimental, hopeful, but I, as we did this play, it opened on December 25th, 1999, with a kind of silly idealism or hopeful idealism. I just said, look, we're going into a new millennium. Can't we walk into it or out of the Colosseum? And of course, we couldn't. We don't. It's just, it's as dark as it ever was. You know, that Colosseum, and we talked a bit about the production in that, were there some things that you weren't able to do that you wanted to bring across in the film, but maybe you didn't have time or budget? Well, we, we had to go back and reshoot. We had to put back in the hunt because there were certain things that were visual that weren't part of the script that were cut for money purposes. And, and I said to the investor, I don't think you can cut this. And when we finally edited the film and they saw it, I said, you, you really do need that hunt. So we actually went back to Rome and put it, put it in because you need sometimes to have breathers between all of the dialogue. There's a scene that I loathe in the film and it, it's the scene where Titus, uh, has been humiliated and he walks down a street and there are three prostitutes in a kind of grotesque. Milena's costumes are very Fellini-esque and, uh, it's too comic. People laugh at that moment. And the original idea was that Titus was walking down the street and all of the shop owners who had really admired their general are closing those metal, metal doors. You know, you, you know, in Rome how you have those metal doors that go, you know, they're very heavy. And we couldn't afford to go down a street that had a bunch of shop owners. So I said, fine, give me three prostitutes, whatever. And, and honestly, I, I, I can't, it's not as easy in, as it is now digitally. I couldn't go back and re-edit it and get rid of it. I wanted him to walk, I would have been better if he had walked down the street alone because it, it just feels out of keeping with the rest of the movie. So I don't think there's anything I didn't get to shoot. I just feel like there is a scene that I would like to have gotten rid of. Going back to the actors again, and, you know, you really create this universe in this world. Was that easier for them to get into this, or was it hard because they're like, I, it seems so anachronistic and, and odd, like, where do I place it? I don't know. You know, there were a couple of DPs who turned down, really big ones, turned it down because they said, I don't, you know, one in particular, not a couple, but who said, I, I don't understand this blend of time, that he, he was limited because he didn't really understand how you can create this world. But I think the actors were very turned on to the idea. I think they found it very exciting that it was a mix. When you have Alan Cummings and you say, look, look at these, um, these, it's, it's not just the, the Hitler and the Mussolini and the, the, the whole decadent 1930s, but, you know, we had, um, oh, what was the artist? Ellie Tamara Lempicka. You know, we, the, that design of his red coat comes from this wonderful artist and I think, and his hair and the way he is, it gave him, it gave him something specific that felt right. Uh, the, the, the decadent time was a perfect time, that kind of fascist period for him. Better than just sort of going to a general, okay, we're going to a general year one, you know. <laughs> um, and also the same for, for 
uh, Jessica, which is you see that in in her costumes as well that she was part of that period. And then someone like Laura Fraser felt like the good daughter, and we dressed her in a kind of fifties feel. You know, the father knows best of Grace Kelly, the bell skirt with the little black gloves and. You know, it's very, she's got her hands are covered by little black gloves, and of course, soon she'll really have no hands, so the black has meaning. Uh, I think the actors were very excited about the whole visual concept. In making Titus for you, what did you learn that has helped you going forward with making other features? Well, hmm, it was a very tough feature. I had never done one, and I had a great producer, uh, Conchita Eroldi, in, in, in Rome. But we went through five uh, script supervisors, which is a disaster, because I didn't even know what a script supervisor did. But we had one had had an illness, cancer, and had to leave. And then one was very rude and didn't speak Italian and was swearing in English. And, you know, even if you don't speak English, you know what a swear is. And another one didn't really know right from left. You know, so as a director in a play like this, a uh, script like this, script supervising, I really got, oh, my God, make sure you've got a great script supervisor because it's not just the eye lines and all, but it's it's everything. And we because I had a great editor, Francoise Bonneau, she was on set helping when we had these changes that were unfortunate but, but did happen. Um, let me see. It, you know, it was a great first feature because it was – I bit off way more than I could chew. It was very ambitious, and yet, and we had lots of problems that happened from weather. Uh, the very first day, we were supposed to be shooting in the forest, and it rained and was muddy, so we had to go to a cover set at Chinichita, and that was the first scene of Jessica Lang, and she had to do, in the mausoleum, she had to do that incredibly emotional scene about uh, begging for the life of her eldest son. Beautiful scene. And, of course, she was supposed to shoot that two weeks later, but we had to do it that day. And she, she, as everybody felt seeing her on the dailies and even just being in the room, we went and she laid down the gauntlet. Look at that actress. Now we know what we're doing. It was magnificent. So there were many things I learned. I, I, I can't even list them. There were so many things from that first shoot because it wasn't a small movie. It was a big movie with lots of people and visual effects and armies and in a foreign language, in a foreign, in a foreign country. Is there anything you want to add about Titus that maybe I forgot to ask you about? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you, you, only what you, you know. I mean, yeah. I, I think the music is an is a enormous part of it and Elliot's, um, you know, he had to write the jazz tunes, you know, the, in advance because we needed them for the, the um, court or the uh, m- many of the sequences. The music had to be there early and really fed us a lot. And I, I think his, his score, which is full orchestra and chorus and then down to beautiful steel cellos and simplicity, it's, it's just a magnificent whacked out score that that has majesty and and grandness but also um crazy contemporary rock nasty rock feel so i'm i think that 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 adds enormous enormously to the success of the film and the other thing is because this is pre uh digital i color i wanted the film to be in black and white and no one would let me shoot it in black and white so as i said to you about the costume and the the sets we tried as much as we can, could to keep it in in a kind of black and white uh tonal field 
and the grass was always an issue for me. So we, we, we tried to, um, to desaturate the greens when we were doing color correction, but it wasn't digital. And now you do digital color correction and you can get rid of all of that. So I did the uh, old-fashioned color correction in three days, the red-blue, you know, the whole old-fashioned way. And and uh, I still think if you see this film on a screen projected as film, it's really sumptuous. So I'm very proud of that and Tovali's work. It, it was amazing. Yeah, it does look beautiful. It's just amazingly well done. And speaking of the score, I wanted to uh, say it's my understanding that the score was so... Uh, good that someone decided to kind of borrow it a little oh, bit? Oh, completely. Uh, Elliot won a lawsuit, a big lawsuit, because they ripped off four, 15 minutes directly from uh, Titus. They even had it redone in Abbey Road where Elliot recorded it, so even the quality of the sound was the same. Everybody kept writing to him and saying, have you seen 300? And uh, the lead actor called us up right away on opening night and said, I think this is the score from Titus. And um, it was shocking because he'd done I don't know how many films for Warner Brothers, and they must have known that this was Elliot Goldenthal's score. So he he had to fight it, and he won. <laughs> I, I just loved that the lead actor called. Yeah, the lead actor. Uh, uh, I I met him on the first night, the opening night in L.A. I was in at the Chateau Marmont. He came over to me and was very excited. He was going to a midnight screening of it, and uh, we had met him in in Italy a uh, year before. And so he said, yeah, my God, and the music, wow, it's sort of like Elliot's music for Titus. So I, I didn't pay attention to that because Elliot's music for all his films is used a lot by other composers uh, for temp music. And, you know, this is not the first time he's been, he's been ripped off, but this is the first time, I think, where he actually said, no, this is too much because this, this was 15 minutes worth um, exact, you know, and I... Uh, and I'm, I think other composers were very happy that he went through this because their their work gets gets um, exploited and pirated and used too much. You've made several films based on Shakespeare, and was just wondering: does it get harder or easier? Does it kind of ebb and flow in terms of getting people to want to do those productions? Completely, it's more difficult now. I was very lucky; it was right after Lion King. Uh, to be able to make this movie, Titus Andronicus. I think if you want to do Romeo and Juliet, there people will still do those popular ones. Macbeth is being done this year with Fassbender and Marianne Cotillard. But getting Shakespeare movies uh, that are not the kind of three or four most popular ones is very difficult. Because, look, Titus now has a cult following. But when it was uh, released by Fox Searchlight, the head of Fox Searchlight, Lindsay Law, had just left the company. So we were a, an orphan, basically, and it was not put out. And as you know with movies, they say, oh, well, it wasn't successful. But movies are all about how much money you spend on promotion. And that includes Across the Universe, Frida, any of them. So if the, if the distributor does not want to spend the money, they will not make the money. And I'm surprised that writers, critics haven't learned that yet, that any movie that is making, going to make money has had good distribution. Titus, I think, was in a couple of theaters, and it never was really sold abroad. So if it lives, it lives by the few who have found it. And The Tempest is the same. It, we were a Miramax film, then Disney uh, disbanded Miramax, and the man who loved the movie, Daniel Batsik, was let go, 
And we were there at Disney, and probably because of my relationship with them on The Lion King, they kept it. But they were, but the person who was running the film company at the time, who's not there anymore, had not a clue what to do with The Tempest. And we went, we were the centerpiece of the Lincoln Center Festival. We closed the Venice Film Festival. And yet, and that's in September, he, they kept the film into December, which is the wrong time to open a film like that. And they did not push it. They did not get it out. They did nothing with it. So you can't, you know, Helen Mirren is wonderful in The Tempest and, and needed to be supported for the Academy. For We did, we did get a, a nod for costumes, but there should have been a lot more attention to that film. But it is a difficult Shakespeare. It's, it's much harder. The Tempest is harder than A Midsummer. Midsummer is more popular, it's easier to follow the story, it's more fun. Tempest is a metaphysical tale. But still, I had wonderful actors. I just think that there, there is, if you don't have a company willing to go to bat and go to the mat and spend money on, on, on promoting it, you're wasting your time if you think you're going to be able to make the money back that you spend on these movies. Although, now with Midsummer, it didn't cost very much, so we're very lucky on that one. And I don't think we're going to release it in a traditional way. I think we're more interested in the event kind of situation with Midsummer. may sound like a ridiculous question because we've been talking about it for almost an hour, but why does Shakespeare still matter? Because he is the greatest writer in the Western world. He really, he has, he continues to blow our minds with the depth of his stories. And we do a lot of copying of those stories, appropriating of them in comic books and, and regular stories. But this, this writer, whoever he was, talked about human nature, psychology, history, in a way that it, it just doesn't get any deeper, funnier, more moving. He just is it. He's, it's, and it doesn't, you don't get tired of it. When we work on it, when Elliot and I work on one of these Shakespeare projects, whether it's in the theater or, or in cinema, we feel blessed. We feel blessed that we watch it a thousand times and never get tired of it. We, every time there's a, there's something that's illuminated for us. Every time we hear it, every time we work on it, every editor I've worked with, well, there's only been two, Francoise and, and now Barbara Tulliver, Francoise Bonneau and Barbara have done the Shakespeare films. And we all sit there with our, you know, as we're working with our mouths dropping at how rich the concepts and the language and the truth and the reality of the characters. And, and also that he does not do cliches. This is one of the main things that I love about him is you just don't know who the protagonist is. I mean, in Midsummer Night's Dream, it begins with a young girl who's being brought before the Duke, who's, the Duke himself is preparing for his marriage to the, the Amazonian queen, who he has raped and conquered. Okay, it's a very interesting beginning. I've, I wooed thee with my sword and won thee with my love or whatever. But we're led to believe that, yeah, he, he, he conquered her, and now he's going to marry her. And in the middle of these quote, happy preparations. We have a, a, a lord drag his daughter in and say, she won't marry the man I want her to marry. She wants to marry this hippie, you know, this artist. And I call upon the ancient love of Athens where she either does what daddy says or she dies. This is the beginning of a comedy. Now, that's daring. 
and you know he takes you through this and by the end you you know with the clowns with the 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 fairies it's it's just such a dense deep confusing world all within 24 hours it's radical he's forever radical shakespeare Thanks to Julie Taymor for coming on the show. You can find out more about her work over at our website, projection-booth.com. We have mentioned quite a few things that have kind of gone through our heads, time bandits and whatnot, Um, obviously Richard III, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, all these things. But the one thing that kept coming back to me, especially at the end of Titus, uh, was the Scott Tennerman Must Die episode of South Park. Have either one of you guys seen that one? I have not, I'm sorry to say. I uh, you, what about you, Rob? No, I'm not familiar with it. Oh, it is one of the best episodes of South Park ever. It's one of the few that doesn't have a B story. You know, every South Park has a couple of different things going on, and eventually they collide towards the end. This one, not so much. This one is one story of Eric Cartman being humiliated time and time again. He kind of meets his match in this kid, Scott Tennerman, this ginger kid who... <laughs> sells Eric his pubes. Don't be jealous, guys. This doesn't mean we can't still hang out. It just means that I matured faster than you. You'll get your pubes, guys, someday. Cartman, you don't buy pubes. You grow them yourself. What? When you get old enough, you grow your own pubic hair that's attached to you, you f***ing dumbass. Nuh-uh. Yahoo! But then why would Scott Tenement sell me his pubes for $10? Because, retard, you're dumb enough to buy Scott Tenement's pubes for $10. Um, because Eric realizes that getting pubes is a uh, rite of passage, and Scott Tenement sells Cartman these pubes for $10, and eventually he gets tricked into giving him $6.12 more, and we just go through this whole thing where Tenement is constantly like two or three steps ahead of Cartman and just piling on the humiliation and has him like drive, you know, take this bus ride all the way out to this other city and just over and over and over and over again. And then right towards the end, things kind of come together where Cartman has his revenge plotted out and manages to execute it. And, the reason why it reminds me of Titus so much is the whole idea of revenge, and it's also this whole thing where Cartman has Tenerman's parents killed and then feeds Tenerman his own parents to him in this chili contest. After a night with the hacksaw, I was all ready to put on my chili con carnival so that I could tell you personally about your parents' demise and, of course, feed you your chili. Do you like it? Do you like it, Scott? I call it Mr. and Mrs. Tenerman Chili. Oh, my God! Oh, my God! I made you eat your parents. Jesus Christ, dude. My mom and dad are dead. No! No! Uh, excuse me. Who are you? We're that band, Radiohead. <laughs> Jeez, what a little crybaby. You gonna cry all day, crybaby? You know, everyone has problems. It doesn't mean you have to be a little crybaby about it. Come on, guys, let's go. This kid is totally not cool. Yeah, that's the most uncool kid I've ever met. Little crybaby. <laughs> no, wait! Wait! Oh my god, oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> 
Yes! Oh, let me taste your tears, Scott. Mm, your tears are so yummy and sweet. Dude, I think it might be best for us to never piss Cartman off again. Good call. Oh, the tears of unfathomable sadness. Mm, yummy. Yummy, you guys. And it is just one of the most twisted and insane South Parks ever. And I loved it. I was just like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And then I watched Titus, and I'm just like, this is Cartman's plan. This is amazing. (laughs) So if you haven't seen Scott Tenorman Must Die, I highly recommend that you go and check it out. I want to say it's like uh, fifth season, either the first or the fourth episode. Highly recommend it. I had not thought. I had not expected to to find a South Park, you know, you know, reference to to this movie. But maybe there is. well, the South Park guys are not stupid, so they, they pull in stuff from all over the place. But as for Titus, like I said in the in the opening discussion, just the film for me when I saw it was just uh, just mesmerized by this character of Aaron the Moore and sort of. What he was saying, how he was saying it, the fact that it was written like 400 years ago, and the ideas that are in there. And a lot of it, like I said, has to go down to Harry Lennox and his portrayal. So we're going to take another break and play an interview with Harry Lennox, who played Aaron the Moore in Titus. How did you get into acting? I remember, you know, from the time I was in elementary school, we would do little spring presentations and so forth. Uh, one of the first things I ever saw was my brother Larry, um, <clears throat> you know, do a role, a little skit. I think I was in second grade, he was in eighth grade. It had a lasting impression on me. And then uh, I wound up doing some of those plays as an elementary school kid, but very tangentially. I wasn't terribly interested in pursuing a career in acting until high school. Uh, I think in my sophomore year I did Guys and Dolls and some professional actors came to see it and thought I had a uh, uncommon potential and said something to my director at the time and I decided uh, from that point really to pursue it seriously and to study it. So I would say I was uh, introduced to it while I was in high school at a preparatory seminary and uh, and that you know at that point it became kind of it's a serious discipline for me. And obviously when studying acting, you're going to come across Shakespeare at some point and, and get into it. And and what is it that you think it is about him in, in that work that still endures? Why is it still around like 400 years later? Some level it's sort of like a DNA thing. I think it's genetic on some level. That is to say, I think the language itself has rhythms in it that somehow he tapped into that for English speakers and English audience, um, they, it just fits into a groove that seems uh, undeniable, seems inevitable. And I think the iambic pentameter and the and the uh, skill at turning a phrase and being able to encapsulate within relatively few words, really, into the entire scope of human emotion in a way that only music can do. Uh, but this is in some way uh, the language of, of the mind, the human mind. And I think he's done it to, insofar as I can tell, uh, better than anyone else has done it. Or certainly as good as, as well as anybody else has done it. So I don't know why him. You know, there's always been that theory that if you put a million monkeys in a room with a million typewriters, eventually one of them would come up with the complete works of Shakespeare. I don't know if that's what happened here, but, uh, but he had something quite grounding in his language. And 
I don't know how he did it. I, I guess if I knew what it was, uh, uh, I might be able to replicate it or at least make some sort of a profit from it. <laughs> but, uh, but he's a genius. So how, who can explain genius, really? Yeah. Well, as for you, do, re- do you remember what it was, what play, what part that really got you interested in his work? I think it was Mark Antony in Julius Caesar. That speech, of course, the Friends Romans Countryman speech is uh, iconic, obviously. And, uh, but it's something about the rhetoric of it. There's something about his ability to to both tell the truth and also win a political uh, battle, as it were, at a funeral oration. There's something about the duplicity of the language, if you will, or at least the double entendre of the language that um, the, the, the sort of acrobatics of Mark Antony's rhetoric, uh, as, as distilled by Shakespeare, that spoke to me very early on. I must have been 14 when I learned that speech, uh, just because it's such a great, it's such a cool speech. Uh, and you can almost immediately arouse anyone's attention uh, in delivering it. So that was probably the, the, the thing that got me into it. And then, you know, years later, of course, I would uh, see a lot of the other plays. Uh, Olivier's Hamlet done as a film. It's Henry V. Um, uh, Olivier really was, was a big influence on me in terms of Shakespeare. And then I graduated, so to speak, from Olivier to Richard Burton. And I, I think he actually is one of the, the most underappreciated uh, performers and ex, you know um, uh, what's the word interpreters of Shakespeare. I still th- don't think people quite grasp his complete mastery of it. There's a uh, little-known film, not even a very good film, which is called The Prince of Players, and it's Laurence Olivier and John Derrick, and, and um, they play the Booth brothers, Ed- Edwin and and, and uh, John Wilkes Booth, and in that film. Burton does four or five Shakespeare characters, and they're each distinctly drawn and each masterfully delivered. So, you know, I, I just, uh, it's it, listening to people who I admire uh, doing it that really inspires me to do it and try to achieve that same level of, of efficacy. In a lot of ways, it sort of seems like um, Shakespeare, to put it in musical terms, is maybe... Um well, he's not the great American songbook, but he's he's standards like in jazz or maybe in classical, you know, like everyone has to play certain Bach pieces or Beethoven pieces or something like that in order to be considered, you know, a great artist. Do you think that's uh, sort of the case? I, I think for a theater, yes. I mean, <clears throat> he's not the only one, obviously, but, you know, you mentioned Bach and Mozart, Beethoven, uh, you know, of course, there's Chopin, all of these people. Now, I think that if you play one of those, great composers well. You can you can pretty much play anything well. I mean, none of it is easy. Uh, Shakespeare, of course, I think is the, if you will, the Bach or whoever is the exemplar of great piano literature, maybe Chopin. Um, Shakespeare is that for theater. Uh, but then you have Bernard Shaw, you have August Wilson, you have uh, um, Pinter, to some extent, even though he's a minimalist. It does require some, some skill, but Shakespeare, I think, is the is 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 the guy. I mean, you can go on discuss people like uh, Marlowe and Dryden, these other people, but I, I think that Shakespeare has the most rigorous demand, frankly, because he's got he's got a lot of volume. You know? <laughs> As for Titus, how did that come about for you? Yeah, I had gone to New York and met with a gentleman named Jeffrey Horowitz. He's the artistic director at Theater for a New Audience. He sort of built the theater in the ground up by himself took an insurance settlement and invested it completely in this thing. And he came, uh, he sort of became a supporter of mine when I went out for the first time to New York to basically audition. I was in 1992. 
Um, actually, I had to audition before, but I went out to move there in 92. And he had seen me before, and he had me come in and meet with Julie. Actually, we met for tea down in the village someplace, not too far from our house or apartment. And uh, we talked about her work and talked about my work, and uh, she gave me an audition. I went in, and she had offered the part, I think, to another actor. And he thought that the part was racist in some way. And I, that gobsmacked me because this is an actor who had done Othello, which is far more uh, objectionable, as far as I'm concerned, on matters of race. Uh, whereas uh, Othello is a kind of savant, you know, at war. He's, he's somebody who's deficient in many ways, easily led by the nose, as, as Iago has it. Uh, whereas, uh, and, and, and Aaron is not. Aaron is the master manipulator. He is the person who's the kind of man behind the, the curtain of Oz. And I thought that the potential for playing a character who's so deeply proud of his origin and his race and what that means in a, in a society which is hostile to him uh, is quite, quite interesting. It makes very interesting statements about race makes very interesting statements about religiosity. Uh, but Aaron believes that, he says, in fact, he says that uh, this before all the world do I prefer. And, and, you know, talking about his own son. And he's willing to risk life and limb and, and, and to really uh, sacrifice everybody else for it. Anyway, I, I told all of these things to Julie. And, uh, and I think that she saw in me someone who could invest it with the kind of uh, passion that she has for her directing. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a pretty dutiful actor, and uh, she and I developed a great friendship during that experience. And so we did the play in 94, or was it 93? 93 or 94 in New York, small little production. A lot of people came to see it. Peter Jennings, of course, the, the uh, late uh, anchor for ABC World News. And uh, Al Pacino came to see it. A bunch of people from The Lion King eventually hired her to direct the Broadway version. Came to see it because it was uh, it was a cause celeb for a little while, at least in the Shakespeare circles. And uh, it was a great honor to to work with her. And um, years later, she remembered me when the when the film came around. Uh, originally, the role was going to go to Sam Jackson, who's of course very celebrated and, uh, and uh, a skilled actor. But uh, he wasn't able to do it because of scheduling, and I got the call. So I was thrilled, and um, you know I'll, I'll never look back with regret, even though I must tell you <laughs> that while we were doing the stage play um, for no money, more or less, ER was uh, was casting, and they had just they were just a, a pilot at the time, and I was one of the two actors that wanted to call in to screen test. It was Eric LaSalle who wound up getting a role in me. And I had to make a choice one night whether or not to get on the plane to come to Los Angeles for that screen test and therefore miss an evening's performance or two evenings performance uh, or to not do that and just do the show. I had no understudy. I called Julie. I offered to buy out the theater because it wasn't a very, very big theater. It would have cost a lot. But uh, she said, Harry, you can't, you know, we have no understudy for you. You can't do this. Like, what are the actors, other actors going to do? And it was that moment, it was a real crisis of, of conscience for me, because on the one hand, an actor is almost, by definition, a self-serving, you know, <laughs> uh, performer. On the other hand, an actor is a member of a company. And uh, that was a very, very valuable lesson to me. And I know had I done the screen test, I don't think I probably would have gotten a part. Eric was great in that part. Um, the 
other part, the other side of that is I know I wouldn't have been able to do the film with Anthony Hopkins and Jessica Lange and my good friend Anthony, uh, Angus McFadden. So in exchange for, for a lot of money and job security and that sort of thing, I was able to have an experience that I otherwise would never have had, which was a dream come true to be in Rome working on Shakespeare with the greatest actors in the world, uh, doing the, with the greatest director in the world, in my opinion, was uh, something that may never happen again. So um, I think I made a pretty good decision there. Well, I'm glad you did, because I think that you just do a masterful job in the film. And sadly, I didn't get to see you on stage. But how did it evolve between the two? I mean, the film is so much everywhere and nowhere. It's today, it's yesterday, it's a thousand years ago, and it's tomorrow in terms of its design and everything. And and, and was it much the same with, with the stage, or did she really infuse the film with something new in that way? Yeah, it's one of those... It's a- it's a great question because I'm not sure if the play evolved. It didn't, uh, but Julie evolved and I evolved, and you know the the characters, the cha- the, the actors changed and so forth. Now, I was the only actor that came from the stage to the screen version in Julie's mind, so I can tell you that there was a lot of consistencies with the the device she used called the Penny Arcade Nightmares, which is sort of those extrapolations of uh, the distillations, if you will, of, of a moment, a uh, psychological moment uh, that is dr- dramatized by Julie in a film and, a, and a, you know, framed in a, in a kind of window. Those developed in the theater. She had those there. Uh, the idea of using branches for Lavinia's arms and, a, and a, you know, a ribbon of blood coming out of her mouth, those evolved, those uh, originated in the theater. Uh, the things that changed, of course, was uh, largely the, the costuming. It, it was far more developed. And the scenic backdrop of Rome itself, it becomes a kind of character in the film. You have what is, in my opinion, a perfect example of the second world. You know, we talk about the first world and the third world. Rome, to me, is the second world, uh, if there is such a thing. It is a collision of time, of uh, tradition, of modernity, and of, uh, of a kind of amorphous self-discovery in real time. What is Rome, you know, now? I remember sitting in a, in a uh, bar in Rome, and there was a man who said, uh, rather glumly, as he was drinking his coffee, he said, uh, Rome is ancient. But the but the ancient but the old Rome does not exist. So basically, he said in Italian, I can't do the exact translation. He said, "Rome is an old city, but old Rome is no longer here." And I thought to myself, "That's that's <laughs> you know that's an excellent uh, description of this place." So I think that that city became a kind of uh, catalyst. Uh, for what that production wound up being. Of course, you've got uh, the genius of Anthony Hopkins uh, on it. You've got Jessica Lange, who, in a stunning first performance in Shakespeare, she had never done Shakespeare at all, and she was able to deliver that. Um, and you've got Angus and Alan Cumming and, and uh, all of these other tremendous actors. So uh, I think that we upped our ante with the casting, and we were able also, in the, while the stage actors were great, uh, you know, who was Anthony Hopkins, but, you know, but one of the greatest of all time. So he's going to raise the level of the game, and we all had to, had to uh, rise to the occasion or we would have wound up floundering. One of the things that you brought up earlier when you were talking about, you know, the character of Aaron the Moore, and you did 
touch on the race issue. And the other thing that I find interesting with him, and you talk about how he's this sort of behind-the-scenes schemer, and I sort of see him as the, the prototype for someone like Iago in Othello in that way. And was wondering yeah. for you, sort of, how did you um, – come to understand and, and blend these things and be able to play it. And, and the way you do it, I mean, it must have been fabulous fun for you to play such a character. I mean, I, I watch that monologue that you give when they're going to hang you at the end, and I can just – I can feel it that this must have been such, uh, such a great uh, piece of music as we were talking about earlier. It's a great question because the development of that monologue was purely a function of rote rehearsal with Angus McBadgen on drunken Roman nights after dinner. So every night after he would say, man, you know, uh, you know, you got to show me the devil on that day. You have to scare the hell out of me. You have to, you have to make me have a sea change uh, for my character. That's what my character needs. You know, actors are always going on about what they need. <laughs> so, but he, rightly so, because uh, that's legitimate. But I kept rehearsing that scene with Angus, kept rehearsing the scene with Angus, and I kept doing it over and over again. And somehow uh, the music revealed itself to me over the course of uh, of rote delivery. And, you know, but it was a liberating experience, I have to tell you, just being able to, to give that kind of uh, black power uh, monologue was was something that I think you'd be hard to find, it would be hard to find today. You know, you've got, we're in a time when people are breaking their necks to play butlers and slaves and servants. And here's this man who can't wait to take down the, the society that, uh, that has brought him to, to, to Rome in chains and to, to dismiss it all because it doesn't speak to his experience and his view of himself. So, yes, it was absolutely a liberating experience for me. I, I, I just watched it again today. <laughs> it just it just shakes you, you know. I mean, when when you consider the character, I mean, did you find? Um, and, and it might be an odd question, it might be a stupid question, but as you were saying, sort of this black power thing, did you find pieces of Aaron in you know other experience or in documentary? I mean, I get the feeling of maybe like Malcolm X or something like that, like looking at that and and, and understanding that feeling. And I, yes. I know it's also in the text as well. Yes, I I, I did uh, draw from from some of my research on, you know, some historical figures. Uh, Malcolm was a big influence on me early. So I know that some of that was in there. Um, I know that some of Stoke and Carmichael and that kind of, you know, the Black Power movement of the 1970s, you know, that that had a big uh, impact on me. So, uh, yeah, there's no way really to take that out of it. Is there anything else about uh, Titus that uh, you want to highlight before I move on to ask you some other stuff? I think it remains artistically, though, the highlight of my film career and in many ways of my theater career since I did both. Uh, being able to work with a singular genius like Julian K. Morris, you know, not something you're going to be able to do every day. Uh, she took, you know, quite a quite a hammering with all this Spider-Man stuff, but that in no way is a reflection on her. That was a reflection of people who left her out there, you know, to, to twist in the wind. I think that um, as time goes on, we're going to recognize what a great contribution she has made to worldwide cinema, worldwide theater, uh, worldwide opera. So she's uh, she's an American treasure, and, and uh, it remains 
one of my very, very fondest experiences of all time. And being someone, as we talked about earlier, you know, someone who studied in Shakespeare and and has an appreciation for it, I was excited to hear that your production of Henry the Fourth, called H Four, is uh, is coming together and uh, should be out soon for most general folks to see. And I was wondering if you could walk me through how that film came together for you. I was looking for a play, actually, you know, for some Shakespeare uh, that I thought could speak to an experience that. Um, was relevant, you know. I mean, everybody has seen a lot of the others, you know, the Romeo and Juliet and the, all of these. And they've been done many different ways, many permutations of a lot of those things. I enjoy them. Um, but I wanted something to really, you know, I, I talk a lot about images in the media, what uh, black people look like in the media, what messages those send. But what is a story that actually has resonance to the African-American, if you will, I prefer black experience? Uh, and I thought, well, you know, if you look at legacy in the black community, Jesse Jackson, Jesse Jackson Jr., Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King Jr., Adam Clayton Powell, his son Adam Jr., uh, Harold Ford, you know, the number it goes on and on. Uh, not not exclusive to the black community, but certainly descriptive of it. Uh, and I looked at that play, and it seemed to me perfectly tailored uh, to a treatment from the point of view of the African-American experience in America, their black experience in America. And I thought that um, the language itself, the characters of Falstaff representing a kind of colonial viewpoint, a kind of vestige or residue from a colonial past, not dissimilar from what you may see in places like South Africa or many neighborhoods in the United States and New York where there are kind of white people who have currency in the black experience, unlike a lot of white programming, white movies and so forth. You know, blacks don't live in a in an isolated community. There are always other um, nationalities, other cultures that interface with our community. If they own stores or teach school or what have you, so we wanted to make something that was representative of a world that was recognizable to us, but that also had at its center a black experience. And we looked at that as a you know, in in, in the black community, of course. Religious figures frequently are political figures. You look at somebody like Sharpton now, or, or uh, again, Jesse Jackson or Dr. King. Those are more or less the people who rise to political influence uh, coming from a kind of religious background. While uh, Henry IV is a necessarily religious guy, he believed that his job was to you know, fight for Christendom. I mean, it, 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 the plays are replete with references to the Holy Wars and so forth. And uh, but he's of course also somebody who you, in some people's view, usurped the throne. Not dissimilar from what Jesse Jackson is purported to have done when he claimed that Martin Luther King died in his arms and became sort of the de facto new leader of the civil rights movement for a time. And I thought that there was a lot of parallels there. Not that our Henry Ford, who I actually play, is is doing a Jesse Jackson impersonation, but 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 those are archetypes for relationships that really do have currency in the black community, and I thought the play was perfect for it. The other thing that made it uh, very compelling to me is that about half of the play, in both Henry IV parts one and two, um, half of them are in prose, the other half is in poetry. So you could actually make the case that there is a statecraft and a stagecraft. So what we wanted to do is to imply that the language of the, of the court is the language of theater, is the language of iambic pentameter. The language of the street is the language of prose. And I think we were able to subtly, you know, in a very nuanced way, is to make those things clear with regard to its availability um, 
we have just made an agreement with a distributor. Uh, it's going to be coming out this fall. Uh, we're making a couple of final tweaks to it, but our intention is to have it out this fall and to get it into as many curricula as we can find throughout the English-speaking world. There's no reason, uh, given the fact that Shakespeare is known to be a universally uh, important playwright, uh, there's no reason that our voice cannot be heard or should not be heard. And I, and I would say this, if Shakespeare is universal, then why do we never see it universally applied? So our intention is to say, while we agree with you, Shakespeare does speak to all cultures throughout uh, a span of time, certainly to ours. And I believe that this vindicates us well and shows that we can Shakespeare with the best of them. And I, and I would put this up against any other version of these two plays ever put to film. That's my opinion. You know, other people will soon have uh, the ability to, to form their own. But, uh, but I'm, I'm proud to have done this. And, and I also have something close on the heels of it, which is Romeo and Juliet in Harlem, which I acted in and also uh, was one of the executive producers of, directed by my friend Alita Chappelle. So we want, you know, we want to do a series of these and put them in schools. Uh, because you know, if, you, if you expect a lot of Latin and black kids to be just immediately compelled by a bunch of white men in tights, speaking in, in highly, you know, uh, arch-British tones, then I think that you're asking a whole lot because uh, that kind of bridging of the gap is never reciprocal. So we want to be able to show that there is some mortar between these two cultures, and, 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 uh, and I, think, uh, I think it's only fair to give us a shot at it, and that's what we've given ourselves. Well, just to let you know, as a relatively young white man, I'm not all that interested in a bunch of British guys speaking arch and tights either. So <laughs> anyone who can give it some flavor and style, hey, I'm there. <laughs> I'll tell you what, man, when, when we finish this thing, I will, uh, I will get a copy of it to you, both, both of them. And, uh, you know, the, to do with as you wish, you know, if you want to uh, do a review or an essay, whatever, you know, it'll be yours just to enjoy at home with your friends or by yourself if you want. But, uh, you know, I can tell that you're a fan of Shakespeare, and, and uh, as one fan to another, uh, I, would, I would love to, to get some of this stuff to you so you can, you know, uh, experience it. Well, thanks so much. And, and, you know, this production, it, it's taken a little while to come together and um, yes. was wondering sort of, um, you know, how long that process has been for you to put this together. And I'm sure people weren't lining up with fistfuls of cash to, you know, hand it to you to make the film. They weren't. No, we, uh, it's taken about uh, four years or so uh, to, you know, from start to finish. Uh, and a lot of it is, you know, a factor of money. We, um, I got very busy doing you know, other things like uh, The Blacklist last year. Also went into production on my third feature last year. Uh, that wound up taking a lot more time and costing a lot more money than I thought. So this got put on hold, so to speak. But I've just been busy, busy grinding. And as the kind of spearhead of this, uh, of these endeavors, uh, you know, time is a very, very valuable commodity. I just didn't have a lot to spend. But uh, I didn't want to put out H4 in a kind of half-interested way. I wanted to finally do my own cut of it, and that's what I'm going to dedicate uh, these next uh, couple of weeks to so that we can get this out there. But we do have distribution on it. Uh, it's going to get some theatrical distribution in a few cities, uh, get some reviews generated, and there are several universities and colleges that have already asked uh, for copies of it once it's uh, complete. So I'm extraordinarily excited about it. I'm, I've been doing some you know, some scholarly writing, academic writing on it, uh, and on Shakespeare in general, as applied by black people. Uh, so I want to keep that dialogue going. It's, it's, it's urgent to me uh, that black people could find a way to lay claim to language 
in a way that isn't uh, the monochromatic, you know, hip hop kind of rendition that 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 we're that, that uh, everybody seems to think we're only capable of. That's nonsense. Uh, black orators have been some of the most eloquent uh, in in the history of the English language. So uh, that's you know, as I said about my regard to Shakespeare, I just want to show that that's true. That he does apply to us. That we do apply to him. That 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 uh, the language is a living thing, and that it can be approached from different eras in, in a different way, and, and, and still made to seem natural, and still made to seem uh, like it's saying something that is important to people. So that's my goal. And I have to say, I'm excited to see this because you have put together just an amazing cast with your group. I mean, Keith David is always, you know, whenever he shows up, I'm always excited about that. Sadly, the the departed Heavy D is in there, and I, I think really underappreciated as an actor. And then also your castmate from Titus, Angus McFadden. So, I mean, did you just go out and tap people on the shoulder and say, "Hey, let's let's do Shakespeare for no money because this is going to be great," and I'm in it. <laughs> With regard to Heavy D and Keith David, yes, I, I definitely said, you know, Keith was all for it. Uh, Heavy was kind of a tough sell because he, he didn't think he could do it, but I thought he did a wonderful job. He's not a lot of them in it, but, uh, but he's done a, a very fine job at it, and, and I'm proud that he's in it. Uh, with regard to Angus, Angus cast himself, and he and he left left it for me to figure out how to explain his presence <laughs> in an otherwise all-black film. So... <laughs> So uh, Angus was uh, happened to be on my porch one night. We were just doing a we do like Shakespeare slams on my porch sometimes. Just a bunch of guys reading it, and uh, I was telling him I was going to be doing H four, and he said, "Oh, well, let's read some." And so he started reading false. He said, "I love this part," and I said, "Okay, guess that's cool, man. Uh, I love it too." He says, uh, "I'm going to do this movie," <laughs> and he totally cast himself in my movie, and I, I was powerless to do anything to stop him. So that's how he got cast. And that added that extra element that you were talking about, that little extra flavor there. He's fantastic at it. I think he fits right in. Uh, he is. He steals the entire show. So it's as much Angus's movie as anybody's. That, uh, and I couldn't have been. I can't be more proud than to have him in it. He's one of my favorite actors in the world. If people are interested in H four, is there a website or any place they can go to check out uh, something related to it? Yeah, we have a Facebook uh, page on H4, H4 the movie on Facebook. Um, there's also various stuff out there. A couple of reviews have been done on it. Uh, we were in a few film festivals. Memphis Independent Film Festival, we premiered in the Chicago International Film Festival. Um, and, it, and there's been various screenings, you know, throughout. But we've maintained it under pretty tight control just because we don't want uh, rogue versions getting out there until it's uh, absolutely but it's very, very close. It's really just a matter of about a week, and it'll be ready to get out there sometime this fall. You brought it up uh, at the front end, and just wanted to ask you a bit about the blacklist. And uh, my co-host, Mike White, who couldn't be with us tonight, was wondering if your character name is Agent Cooper of the FBI was some sort of uh, nod back to Twin Peaks. I, I don't know. I never actually saw Twin Peaks. Um, I'm not aware of, a, of who that character may have been, but... Uh, you would probably have to ask John Bokenkamp, who you know wrote the the, the character. So I I couldn't say. Okay, but as for the blacklist itself, um, how has it been for you? And uh, we were talking to uh, Tom Noonan recently, and he said that it was a bit of a surprise that it kind of took off as well as it did. 
Oh, I think it surprised everybody. You know, uh, freshman out of the gate at, a, at what was at the, that moment a sort of struggling network. Um, it, it did very well. I, I don't know if there's any explaining it. It just uh, captured, you know, the attention of, of the viewers. And we had a pretty stiff competition with Hostages, which was uh, on uh, CBS at the time. With a with a very attractive cast, and um, I don't know. I think that I think one of the reasons is James Spader is a masterful actor, and you know you got some very good writers writing some very interesting stuff. They really know how to keep that rabbit hole burrowing. You know, it just goes down all kinds of different uh, lanes. Nobody knows what the next thing is that's coming. We certainly don't know. Um, I can I think I can speak for the cast, but somehow they've been able to keep people interested. And that's really, you know, that's really the job of, of, of television, really. It's serialized television. Is you want people to have a reason to come back next week. And uh, where you used to have these kind of one-off uh, kind of individual movies every week. For example, I'm a huge fan of Gunsmoke and uh, The Fugitive. You know, where you've got this character who is consistent throughout very many episodes, but the story changes, the storyline changes each episode, whereas this one kind of goes down one path circumnavigates around another patio, so you've got all of these kind of uh, concentric circles. And that's, that's very interesting. It's a really interesting take on it. It's, I don't think it's unique to the blacklist, but I think what the blacklist does do is it's, it proves that uh, cable isn't the only place to have fun on television. And, and uh, we can, you know, deliver high-quality content on a weekly basis with, you know, seasoned actors and some new faces and, uh, and, and keep it really interesting on network. Uh, it's, it's, it's not at all boring. I don't think it's at all stayed like a lot of uh, other shows have the reputation of being on network. And, and so I think we're, in that way, uh, we've provided a great service for free TV, if you will. From a craft angle as an actor and doing episodic and series work like this, is it easier for you because the character is sort of a suit that you go in, you put it on, and then you do another episode? Or is it, is it harder to maintain that continuity for you? All acting work should look easy. <laughs> but it shouldn't be, uh, or that is to say that, you know, I, I have to admit, it, you know, acting has become more organic for me as I go along. I have an easier time finding my way around a character, uh, given the stuff that I have to do on television. So, uh, you know, playing a, a head FBI guy is territory I've been in before, but I like Cooper because there's a lot to the man that we don't know. He's a mystery to a lot of the people. Now, in my mind, I have all kinds of storylines for him, and I figure I know just what he was up to for, for some time. But, uh, but that is rarely lines up with what is given to me. So you always have to wind up doing the work, backtracking, undoing the kind of research and discovery that, that you, know, you, you have done as an actor, and then have to really make yourself adhere to the character and be obedient to the character. And the writers largely control that. So um, most of my work is, is undoing uh, presumptions of my own making uh, on this thing, and, and that's very interesting. I, I like it. I've never been bored on this show. I, I learn more about Errol Cooper uh, every time he has something you know, uh, to reveal, and, and, uh, and it's been very enjoyable. It's only been one year, so it's, it's far from being uh, you know, uh, boring at this point for me. I've, I've not had all that much to do yet. Uh, I'm grateful for what I have done because I think it's been very compelling. It's very interesting. He's a very interesting man. How does this black man um, wind up as the assistant director for counterterrorism of the FBI? I don't think it's affirmative action. You know, he must 
there must be some reason that they picked this man uh, to do this. It's really not a political office in that sense. So he's got to have a lot of information. He must know where a lot of bodies are buried. He must have a lot of things under his sleeve. And he must be a pretty good company man in order to win the trust and the confidence of people who you know have the power of life and death. So he's an interesting guy. Thanks again. Okay, you bet. Thanks to Harry Lennox for coming on the show. Uh, he is not to be confused with Lenny Henry, which I constantly do. So if I've called Mr. Lennox Henry instead of Harry throughout this episode, I hope he understands. You can find out more about his work, including his upcoming adaptations of Shakespeare, over at our website, projection-booth.com. So we have talked about Romans for – this is our fourth Roman themed film in Roman month, August, and coming up in September, more for the alliteration than anything else, we are going to be talking about Shakespeare films, and Titus kind of bridges this uh, these two things together for us, because we have one of Shakespeare's Roman plays, and Shakespeare was no stranger to Rome when it came to his plays. It was really kind of a, a great place for him to mine some stories. I can think of at least three Shakespeare Roman plays without really trying to too hard to, to dig too much more, like Coriolanus, Antony and Cleopatra, and Julius Caesar. What other uh, Roman plays are out there that Shakespeare has done? I kind of mix in with the Greek and Roman. Then it's also Pericles and Cymbeline and... Um uh, blah, blah, blah. There's one more. Which one am I not thinking of? Um, Troilus and Cressida, of course. And Time of Athens. There's the other one. Time of Athens, too. I mean, we kind of already talked about several different Shakespeare films, which we'll be getting into in September. So I was just trying to find if there was anything that anyone wanted to talk well, about. That there's, another, that there's another Tamor Shakespeare that was just, you know, very recently with Helen Mirren. Uh, Tamor uh, did a version of The Tempest with Helen Mirren as Prospero, as a kind of Prospera in this, where she just, you know, she plays Prospero as if Prospero was the father of, you know, Miranda on this island. And that was a film when I saw coming out, I was just, oh my, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. And there was a bit of a letdown. I, I think my hopes may have been too high for it, but it's not the kind of... Ta uh, 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 Tamor didn't seem to go in the same kind of um, direction, like complete artist, uh, kind of art design, you know, for this, for, for her Tempest. And I don't know. It might might be a film that when I watch in the future, I'll like it more because perhaps my hopes were too high for it this time. And she also uh, just did a production of Midsummer Night's Dream on stage in New York, with uh, which was uh, supposedly this gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous visual design, and that was kind of the centerpiece of the show. And she has filmed it, and um, not as a, as, a, as, a, as a dramatic film, but they filmed the stage production itself, and that'll be available later this year. So I imagine if... You know, there are people who like Titus that, that this midsummer this look at her midsummer night's dream uh, visual design will will be uh, just as exciting. Yeah, I tried to watch the Tempest, but I was just not in the mood for it. Um, it takes a lot for me sometimes to 
get past the language when it comes to Shakespeare. It's like, I think the language is beautiful. I love the way that it's written. I love the way that it sounds. But sometimes it feels like as I'm listening to Shakespeare, it's like if I'm listening to someone speak Spanish. Like, I can't really appreciate what they're saying so much as I'm sitting there translating it in my head. And eventually the words get get through what's going on, but that first level is always the translation. And I don't mean to sound like a lazy American, but I am a lazy American. I don't want to work that hard sometimes. It's just like, can you just give me the gist of what you're trying to say rather than giving it to me in the iambic pentameter and the rhyme couplets? I just want to know kind of more what you're trying to say than the way that you're saying it in this so beautiful way. It's kind of like, you know, uh, like reading Anne Rice, which is, you know, one, she is one of the most overwritten authors to me. It's just like this, this sentence that took you like a paragraph to write. Can you just boil that down into three words that actually it, it, it should be, you know, give me the noun, the verb and the object. I don't need all this other gobbledygook, but how dare you? <laughs> How dare you not understand 400-year-old verse perfectly well? <laughs> I know, I know. When it came to Titus, I really lucked out. I had subtitles for it, and I was able to read it and watch it at the same time, and that really helped me. When I watched The Tempest, I didn't have the subtitles, so I was re- relying solely on my ears, and I'm just like, I'm not exactly sure I'm picking up everything that's being laid down right now. So I kind of appreciate reading my Shakespeare almost as much as I appreciate hearing my Shakespeare. I think it's more for me a, a visual thing than an auditory thing, which is which is bad because he was so into the rhythms of the language and everything. But I think having those two things together really kind of helped me out. Yeah, I, I read so much Shakespeare and watch so much Shakespeare that I understand it all, but but that's mainly because I'm so familiar with it. I'm I'm actually, you know, I, I'm 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 very used to reading 400 year old verse, and I get, you know, I, I understand it right away. But that's only because I do it a lot. We're not naturally inclined to understand, you know, verse that's 400 years old. It's not just the vocabulary; it's just because it's written, you know, in verse in, in this, you know, intricate poetic way that it can be difficult to understand. Um, for my money, the only film director, and, and people disagree with me this all the time, but I think that the only film director who was ever able to do it and film it where people not used to even listening to it could understand it right away was Branagh. Um, when, in Kenneth Branagh's first, his first two Shakespeare movies, Henry V and Much Ado About Nothing, at that age, when I went to see those, I knew Shakespeare, but I didn't know it that well, and I felt like, oh my God, I understand everything everyone is saying. Um, and and I think those two movies are brilliant, and, and he's made others that are okay, but not as good as those two. Um, and Tabor, for as much as I love this movie, she doesn't quite, I don't think, have the ability to, you know, to have the to have the actors perform in a way that we can all understand it right off the bat. And also, the, the, the also but also about, about Titus is, is it's, it's, an, it's one of those early Shakespeare plays, and it's, the language is a little more obtuse. It's a little more low. I mean, people actually say low in this um, play, um, and, the, and the verse isn't quite as, as uh, sharp and as easy to understand as, as, it, as it became a little better later. 
I would say with the Brana stuff, I would agree with you. I'm one of the few that strapped themselves in for all four and a half hours of uh, Hamlet when he did that. Oh, I love it. I, lo- I love his. I love his. I don't think it's his best, but I still love it. It's, it's you know, I, I, I think he knows how to do it, and he knows how to pick actors and how to direct them in ways. But it's interesting because all through the course of Shakespeare stage history, the one thing that when somebody is really pop, when an actor is really popular, David Garrick in the 18th century, Edmund Keane and Henry Irving in the 19th century, in the 20th century, Olivier and Gilgood, the one thing they always say is the same thing. This guy speaks his lines so naturally, and everyone can understand it. And they said the same thing about Brana. And it's interesting, when you go back and you look at an Olivier film, he doesn't speak those lines naturally. They don't sound like natural speech, and yet people at the time thought that they were. And it's the same thing all through time. So I wonder if, in another 50 years, people are going to go back and look at the Brana films and think, like, wow, that's so affected. I can't, you know, why is he speaking that way? And yet we think it's perfectly natural the way that that, that is the thing that he has brought to the to the uh, to the diction to the delivery of the of those lines. I wanted to also throw it out there for those who would like to see other things by Julie Taymor that is not Shakespeare related. Uh, she did a biopic of Frida Kahlo with uh, Selma Hayek and Alfred Molina as uh, Diego Rivera. So it's called Frida. It's it's quite good. So uh, you get some of the uh, design ideas and things like that. Obviously not as um, not as all over the place but coherent as in Titus, because obviously you're dealing with someone who was around turn of the century for, to about 1950. Well, she also worked with one of Ed's other favorite authors. She did a adaptation of an Edgar Allan Poe story, Fool's Fire. Have you seen that one, Ed? Oh, Fool's Fire. I've forgotten that was her. Yeah, I have seen that. It's very good. Um, I, 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 I take that off the Bravo channel way back when, what was that, in the early 90s, I remember. And I still have a copy of that somewhere. And I remember I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I actually just got an email probably about a month ago from a professor someplace who knew that I have a copy of that and he's looking for it. So I haven't forgotten you. I need to go through and uh, <laughs> find that DVDR. So somewhere I know that I've got it. And for me, it was all about seeing a uh, per- another performance by Michael J. Anderson, who was uh, – Actually, we talked to him for our Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me episode, so it was really nice to see him in this um, very elaborately. Again, we have this amazing uh, staging and this use of puppets and puppetry that, like, Tamor, to me, she's this... You know, she she's got so many different skills, and she blends them together so well. But the way that she did, like the puppetry with the adaptation of the Lion King on stage, which uh, for all intents and purposes is another Shakespeare adaptation, and I think I might be one of the people that would actually really like to have seen her um, Spider-Man musical. I would have liked to have seen Turn Off the Dark, but never got the chance. Nobody else, huh? Okay. <laughs> no one else wants to see Turn Off the Dark. No, I didn't want to see I, I don't want to see any musical. I, I'm not in, you know, I don't want to do that. I wouldn't put myself through that. See, I'm I'm all for the musicals. I'm right there with, uh, you know, my Jesus Christ superstar and everything. So My whole family, except me. I'm the only one that won't do it. So. Oh. 
And if, and here's 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 one. If um uh if, if people that like like Titus and want something a little campier, but also in the horror and Shakespeare vein, I'm sure you've seen Theater of Blood with Vincent Price, in which he plays an um kind of an older Shakespearean actor who has been maligned by critics his entire career, and then he goes and seeks out his revenge on each critic, and he gets his revenge in a way that is in, 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 in a form that is done in a Shakespearean play. And, of course, Titus Andronicus is is used in that as well. And it's got Vincent Price and, and a young Diana Rigg, uh, 1973. I think she plays his daughter in it. And, uh, and it's very fun. And, uh, and, there's, and you've got Vincent Price doing Shakespeare all through it as well. It's, it's a blast, that movie. A 1973 Diana Rigg sounds right up my alley. <laughs> We're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. Somewhere behind granite battlements, beyond impenetrable gates, indoors, something evil is brewing. And it isn't Elsinore beer. Here, an unsuspecting heiress has become the innocent pawn of a diabolical genius. At his command, space-age super lasers that can incinerate an entire metropolis. An army of deadly hockey warriors. At his fingertips, lots of beer. Just one more test, and then we are ready for the world. What fool dares stand in his way? I'm Bob McKenzie. This is my brother, Doug. How's it going, eh? Welcome to our movie, eh? At last, television's Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis have just hit the great white screen. These are the adventures of Bob and Doug McKenzie. Strange brew. That's private company business. Perhaps one of these would refresh your memory, eh? The gallant champions of truth. He's lying, all right. I don't need no machine to tell me that. Hey, I didn't do it, I swear. It must be them. Justice. I think it's time the little lady and I had a chat. And the pursuit of bad guys. We will move towards Oktoberfest's plan. I can't believe it. He drank it all. Oh, no. And I will not underestimate our little friends again. With Max Boncino. Paul Dooley. You murdered him first. And he was already dead when I killed him. Lynn Griffin. I didn't have puke breath. I'd kiss you. And an all-star cast. Take off, you know. <laughs> You take off, you nut. <laughs> okay. Don't miss the biggest, the grandest, the first McKenzie Brothers movie of all time. The Adventures of Bob and Doug McKenzie. I'd like to thank the Academy. Academy. That's it. We're leaving, kids. Strange Brew. You hoes, they wanted to see our movie, now they're mad at it. Hey, cop, it's only a preview, eh? I didn't want to show them the best part. Okay, so that's our topic for today. So, good day. Hey, you guys. What? 
That's right, folks. We kick off Shakespeare September with a hearty drink of strange brew. I like my Shakespeare to be drenched in beer. We're going to be talking about the Bob and Doug McKenzie film all the way from the Great White North and more when we talk about this Hamlet, very loose Hamlet adaptation. But before we go, we wanted to thank Julie Tamor and Harry Lennox for joining us. You can find out more about their work and Titus over at our website, projection-boot.com. And I also want to thank our special guest co-host, Ed Pettit, for coming on the show. The last time we talked to you was, uh, you were, blah. the last time we talked to you, you were teaching a horror film class and uh, we we're talking to you about George Romero's Martin. So what is the latest with you, sir? Doing some Shakespeare and some more Poe stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm actually in a production of Midsummer Night's Dream right now at a Victorian mansion in Philadelphia, the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion. I was at rehearsal today and uh, I'm doing that. And I am uh, actually writing a, putting together a Poe-inspired uh, comic series that I'm going to try to uh, sell. And hopefully that will work. I'm giving a Shakespeare talk at the Free Library of Philadelphia in October, and I'm also giving a zombie talk on the history of zombies at uh, another library in October as well. And then, of course, NoirCon comes to Philadelphia at the end of October, so I can't wait for NoirCon. Well, I have to recommend Jamie Russell's Book of the Dead when you're looking at zombies in film. He kind of wrote the definitive book, and we talked to him on our um, Deadheads episode. So he is uh, definitely a good resource, and his book is amazing. So my life is a mixture of Poe, horror, Shakespeare, and then I'll have Noircon. <laughs> what about your Dickens? Oh, and I, yeah, I'm still doing some Dickens things. Uh, I have a actually, I, I do every year at this Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion. I do a, um, uh, I read a Dickens Christmas book. I'm reading uh, Cricket on the Hearth this year, and we have people in the mansion, and then I read them, read to them just as Dickens would have performed uh, when he used to read his tales to people. So I'm doing that as well. There's always Dickens in the mix, too, of course. <laughs> I didn't grow this beard for nothing. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thanks again, Ed, for coming on the show. You'll be hearing more from Ed as we dive into other Shakespeare flicks during the month of September. Also, you can find out about his latest work and other connections with this week's film at projection-booth.com. And hey, uh, there's also a link over there to uh, the iTunes page where you can go there and leave us a review and leave some stars. And also feel free to click through and um, buy any of the uh, various sundry items that we may be offering through projection-booth.com. We get a little bit from that to help support. Or if uh, you want to make it even easier, you can hit the donate button up the top right corner and uh, give a little cheddar through PayPal because every nickel in every review helps. Thanks.
Welcome, my gracious lord. Welcome, dread queen. Welcome, me warlike gods. Welcome, Lucius. And welcome all.